The Way of a Pilgrim, Chapter 1 By the grace of God I am a Christian, by my deeds a great sinner, and by my calling a homeless wanderer of humblest origin, roaming from place to place. My possessions consist of a knapsack with dry crusts of bread on my back, and in my bosom the Holy Bible. This is all. On the 24th Sunday after Pentecost, I came to church to attend the liturgy and entered just as the epistle was being read. The reading was from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, which says in part, Pray constantly. These words made a deep impression on me, and I started thinking of how it could be possible for a man to pray without ceasing, when the practical necessities of life demanded so much attention. I checked my Bible and saw with my own eyes exactly what I had heard. That is, it is necessary to pray constantly, to pray in the Spirit on every possible occasion, in every place to lift up your hands reverently in prayer. I thought and thought about these words, but no understanding came to me. What shall I do, I thought? Where can I find a person who will explain this mystery to me? I will go to the various churches where there are good preachers and perhaps I will obtain an explanation from them. And so I went. I heard many very good homilies on prayer, but they were all instructions about prayer in general. What is prayer, the necessity of prayer, and the fruits of prayer. But no one spoke of the way to succeed in prayer. I did hear a sermon on interior prayer and ceaseless prayer, but nothing about attaining that form of prayer. Inasmuch as listening to public sermons had not given me any satisfaction, I stopped attending them and decided with the grace of God to look for an experienced and learned person who would satisfy my ardent desire and explain ceaseless prayer to me. For a long time I traveled through various places. I read the Bible and asked for the whereabouts of a spiritual teacher or a devout and experienced director. After some time, I heard of a nobleman in a certain village who takes his salvation seriously. I was told that he has a chapel in his home and does not go out but spends all his time praying and reading spiritual books. When I heard this, I ran to the mentioned village and sought out this God-fearing landowner. What can I do for you? he asked me. I heard that you are a devout and wise man, and I came in the name of God to ask you to explain to me the meaning of the words of St. Paul pray constantly. How is it possible to pray continuously? I am very eager to know this and cannot in any way comprehend it. The gentleman was silent for a moment. Then he looked at me intently and said, Ceaseless interior prayer is a continuous aspiration and a yearning of the spirit of man towards God. To succeed in this sweet exercise, it is necessary to ask God frequently that he teach you to pray continuously. Pray often and fervently, and prayer itself will reveal this mystery to you, how it is possible for it to be continuous, but it takes time. Having said this, he ordered the servants to give me food, he gave me some money for the road, and dismissed me, but he did not explain ceaseless prayer. Again I went, I thought, I read, and I meditated on the words of the nobleman, but I could not understand and my desire to understand became so intense that even my sleep was disturbed. I continued my journey for about 200 versts, and then found myself in a large provincial city. I saw a monastery, 
At the inn where I stopped, I heard that the superior of the monastery was very kind, devout, and hospitable to strangers. I went to him. He received me warmly and offered me some refreshments. Reverend Father, I said, I do not need refreshments, but I would like you to give me spiritual advice. I would like to know how to work out my salvation. Work out your salvation? Well, keep the commandments and pray to God and you will be saved. I heard that it is necessary to pray without ceasing, but I do not know how to pray without interruption, and I cannot even understand what is meant by ceaseless prayer. Please explain this to me, dear Father. I do not know how to make this clear, dear brother. But wait, I have a book which has an explanation. And he brought a copy of St. Demetrius' Spiritual Instruction for the Interior Man and indicated which page I should read. I began reading the following. The words of the Apostle pray constantly are to be understood as referring to mental prayer. The mind can be constantly fixed on God and communion with Him. Please explain to me how the mind can be always set on God, not be distracted, but continuously praying. This is exceptionally difficult to understand unless God himself reveals it, said the Father Superior, and he did not explain. I spent the night at the monastery and in the morning expressed my gratitude for the warm reception and continued with my journey, not knowing where it would take me. I grieved over my lack of understanding, and for consolation I read the Bible. For five days I traveled in this manner, on a long and wide road, and toward the evening of the fifth day an old man caught up with me, who looked like a member of some religious community. To my question he answered that he was a monk, and that his hermitage was about ten versts from the main road, and he invited me to visit the hermitage. We receive pilgrims and strangers and give them food and lodging in our guest house, he said. Since I had no inclination to stop there, I I replied, My peace does not depend on a place to stay, but on spiritual direction. I'm not looking for food, as I have enough bread in my knapsack. And what manner of direction are you looking for? What seems to be puzzling you? Come, come, dear brother, visit us. We have experienced elders who can give spiritual nourishment and direct one on the path of truth, according to the word of God and the writings of the Holy Fathers. You see, Father, about a year ago, while I was at liturgy, I heard the following admonition from the Apostle Paul, Pray constantly. Not being able to understand this, I began to read the Bible, where in many places I found God's precepts, that it is necessary to pray continuously, to pray always, at all times, and in all places, not only while working, not only when awake, but also in one's sleep. I sleep, but my heart is awake. I was very surprised by this and could not understand how this could be possible and by what means it could be accomplished. A strong desire and curiosity took hold of me, and night and day it did not leave me. For this reason, I went from church to church to listen to sermons on prayer, and though I have heard very many of them, I did not receive the desired instruction, how to pray without ceasing. The, holy, the homilies I heard were about the preparation for prayer or the fruits of prayer and similar things, but I did not learn how to pray without ceasing or what is the meaning of such prayer. I kept reading the Bible and in this way I tested what I heard, but I could not find the desired knowledge. And so to this day I am left bewildered 
and without peace. The elder blessed himself and began to speak, Thank God, dear brother, for this insatiable desire to understand ceaseless mental prayer. Recognize in this a call from God and be at peace. Believe that up to this time your seeking was in accordance to God's will, and you were given to understand that heavenly light regarding continuous prayer is not reached by worldly wisdom and superficial curiosity. On the contrary, it is discovered in the spirit of poverty and simplicity of heart through active experience. Therefore, it is not surprising that you did not hear about the essential act of prayer and learn how to carry it out without ceasing. The truth is that, though there is neither a shortage of sermons nor of treatises of various writers about prayer, for the most part, these discourses are based on mental analysis and on natural considerations, rather on active experience. For this reason, they teach more about the external character of prayer than the essence of prayer. One speaks beautifully about the necessity of prayer, another about its power and its benefits, and still another of the means and conditions for its accomplishments, that is, zeal, attention, warmth of heart, purity of thought, reconciliation with the enemies, humility, contrition, and so on. And what is prayer, and how does one learn to pray? To these primary and most fundamental questions, one seldom finds an accurate explanation in the homilies of our time. These basic questions are more difficult to understand than the above-mentioned discourses, and they require mystical perception in addition to academic learning. What is most unfortunate is that worldly wisdom compels their spiritual teachers to measure God's ways by human standards. Many approach prayer with misunderstanding and think that the preparatory means and acts produce prayer. They do not see that prayer is the source of all good action and virtue. They look upon the fruits and results of prayer as means and methods, and in this way depreciate the power of prayer. This is contrary to Holy Scripture, because St. Paul clearly states that prayer should precede all action. First of all, there should be prayers offered, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. The Apostle's directive indicates that the act of prayer comes first. It comes before everything else. The Christian is expected to perform many good works, but the act of prayer is fundamental because without prayer it is not possible to do good. Without frequent prayer, it is not possible to find one's way to God, to understand truth, and to crucify the lusts of the flesh. Only fidelity to prayer will lead a person to enlightenment and union with Christ. I say frequent prayer because purity and perfection in prayer is not within our reach. As St. Paul the Apostle indicates, the Spirit comes to help us in our weakness when we do not know how to pray. Romans 8.26 Consequently, our only contribution towards perfection in prayer, the mother of all spiritual good, is a regularity and consistency. If you win the mother, you will have the children also, says St. Isaac of Syria. Acquire the habit of prayer and it will be easy for you to do good. This basic truth regarding prayer is not clearly understood or presented by those who are lacking practical experience and who are not acquainted with the mystical teachings of the Holy Fathers. The course of this conversation brought us close to the hermitage, in order not to let this wise man go, and to quickly receive my heart's desire, I hurried to ask him, 
Please be gracious, Reverend Father, and explain the meaning of ceaseless mental prayer to me and show me how I can learn to practice it. I can see that you are both well-versed and experienced in this matter. The elder received my plea lovingly and invited me to visit him in his cell. Come, stop by and I will give you a book of the Holy Fathers from which, with the help of God, you can learn all about prayer and understand it clearly and in detail. When we entered his cell, the elder said, The ceaseless Jesus prayer is continuous, uninterrupted call on the holy name of Jesus Christ with the lips, mind, and heart. And in the awareness of his abiding presence, it is a plea for his blessing in all undertakings, in all places, at all times, even in sleep. The words of the prayer are, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Anyone who becomes accustomed to this prayer will experience great comfort as well as the need to say it continuously. He will become accustomed to it to such a degree that he will not be able to do without it and eventually the prayer will of itself flow in him. Now do you understand what ceaseless prayer is? He asked me. Very clearly, dear Father, for the love of God, please teach me how to make it my own. I exclaimed in joy. To learn about this prayer, we will read from a book called the Philokalia. This book, which was compiled by 25 Holy Fathers, contains complete and detailed instructions about ceaseless prayer. The content of this book is of such depth and usefulness that it is considered to be the primary teacher of contemplative life. And as the Venerable Nisiphorus says, it leads one to salvation without labor and sweat. Is it then more important than the Holy Bible, I asked? No, it is neither more important nor holier than the Bible, but it contains clear exposition of the ideas that are mysteriously presented in the Bible and are not easy for our finite mind to understand. I'll give you an illustration. The sun, a great, shining, and magnificent light, cannot be contemplated and looked at directly with the naked eye. An artificial glass, a million times smaller and dimmer, then the sun is needed to look at the great king of lights, to be enraptured by its fiery rays. In a similar way, the Holy Bible is a shining light, and the Philokalia is the necessary glass. Now, if you will listen, I will read how you can learn ceaseless interior prayer. The elder opened the Philokalia to the account of St. Simeon the New Theologian and began reading, Sit alone in silence, bow your head, and close your eyes. Relax your breathing, and with your imagination, look into your heart. Direct your thoughts from your head into your heart. And while inhaling, say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, either softly with your lips or in your mind. Endeavor to fight distraction, but be patient and peaceful, and repeat this process frequently. The elder illustrated this passage for me, and then we read the accounts of St. Gregory of Sinai and Venerable Callistus and Ignatius. All the material which we read in the Philokalia, the elder explained in his own words. I listened with attention and delight to everything and endeavored to remember as much as I could. We spent the whole night in this way, and in the morning we went to matins without having slept. When I left, the elder blessed me and encouraged me to come to him for direction and confession during the course of my study of prayer. 
He said that without the guidance of a director, it is not very profitable to study interior life. Later, while standing in church, I felt a burning zeal to learn ceaseless prayer, and I asked God to help me in this. But then I became concerned about having a place to stay while going to the elder for direction. At the inn, I could not stay more than three days, and there were no apartments available close to the hermitage. Fortunately, I heard of a village about four versts away, and I went there to look. God was with me and helped me to find a place. I made arrangements with a farmer to live in a little hut and guard his vegetable garden during the summer months. Praise be to God, I found a quiet place. Now I could begin to study interior prayer according to the method which was shown to me, and I could still visit with the elder. For a week I followed the instructions of the elder and studied ceaseless prayer alone in the vegetable garden. And for a while I managed. Then a great burden came upon me. Laziness, boredom, drowsiness, and a cloud of disturbing thoughts seemed to overwhelm me. In my sorrow, I went to see the elder and explained my situation to him. He welcomed me lovingly and said, Dearly beloved brother, a war has been declared against you by the world of darkness, a world which finds nothing as terrifying as heartfelt prayer, and therefore tries by all means possible to confuse you and distract you from your purpose of learning how to pray. However, even the action of the enemy is permitted by God's will to the extent that it is necessary for us. It seems that your humility needs to be tested and that you are not ready yet to enter the interior of your heart, for you may fall into spiritual greediness. I will read you a directive from the Philokalia regarding such a situation. And so the elder found the instruction of the venerable Nisiphorus, the solitary, and began, If in spite of all effort you cannot enter the interior of the heart in the way which was explained to you, then do what I will tell you, and with God's help you will reach your goal. Man's vocal cords enable him to speak, to vocalize words, use this ability then, and while fighting distractions, diligently and continuously say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. If you will persevere for some time, then without any doubt the path to the heart will be open to you. This has been verified through experience. Do you hear what the Holy Fathers say about a case similar to yours? asked the elder. Therefore you ought to receive this exhortation with faith and say the Jesus prayer vocally as often as possible. Here is a prayer rope on which you can count, and in the beginning say the prayer at least 3,000 times a day. Do not add to or take away from this number by yourself. Through this exercise, God will help you to achieve the ceaseless activity of the heart. I received this instruction joyfully, returned to my place, and began faithfully and as accurately as possible to carry out this directive of the elder. For two days it was somewhat difficult. Then it became so easy and pleasant that when I was not saying the prayer, a need arose within me to say it, and I began to say it then with much greater ease than I had experienced at the beginning. I reported this to the elder, and he suggested that I recite the prayer 6,000 times a day. He said, Be at peace and faithfully recite the assigned number of prayers, God will reward your effort.
For a whole week, I stayed alone in my hut and recited the Jesus prayer 6,000 times every day, neither worrying about anything nor paying attention to the distracting thoughts, no matter how severe they became. My main concern was to carry out the advice of my director as accurately as possible. And do you know what happened? I became so accustomed to the prayer that if for a short while I stopped reciting it, I felt as if I were missing something, as though I had lost something. When I would begin reciting the prayer again, I would immediately feel great joy and delight. If I happened to meet someone then, I did not feel like talking. My only desire was to be alone and to recite the prayer. I had become so accustomed to it in a week. As the elder had not seen me for ten days, he came to visit me. He listened as I gave him an account of my progress and then said, You are now accustomed to the prayer, so continue with this good habit and strengthen it. Do not waste any time, but decide with the help of God to recite the prayer 12,000 times a day. Rise earlier and retire later. Stay alone and every two weeks come to me for direction. I did as the elder suggested on the first day. I barely completed the assigned number by late evening. At first I felt tired in reciting the prayer constantly. My tongue seemed numb and my jaw was tight. There was both a pleasant sensation and a slight pain in the roof of my mouth. My left thumb, with which I counted the beads, was sore, and there was an inflammation in my wrist extending to the elbow which produced a pleasant sensation. All this seemed to attract and compel me to greater accomplishment, and I spent five days of faithfully reciting 12,000 prayers a day, experiencing both joy and longing for the prayer. Once, early in the morning, the prayer seemed to awaken me. I got up to read my morning prayers, but my tongue had difficulty in formulating the words, and I was overwhelmed with the desire to recite the Jesus prayer. And when I started it, it became so easy and delightful that my tongue and lips seemed to do it of themselves. I was joyful the whole day and seemingly oblivious to everything else. I seemed to be in another world, and with great ease I recited 12,000 prayers by early evening. I would have liked to continue, but I could not go against the directions of the elder. For some days I continued in this manner joyfully and lovingly calling on the name of, the, on the name of Jesus. Then I went to see the elder and told him everything in detail. He listened to me and then said, Praise be to God that now you have both a longing for the prayer and that the recitation of it comes easily. This is a natural result of discipline and frequent practice, which can be compared to a wheel of a machine that has been given a push, and then the machine works by itself. Then the wheel needs only to be oiled and nudged for the machine to keep working. Excellent gifts the lover of mankind has endowed even the sensual nature of man. Your own experience testifies to the kind of feelings which can be experienced without extraordinary grace, even in impure and sinful souls. How indescribably wonderful it is when God designs to purify a soul from passion and grants to it the gift of self-activating interior prayer. This condition is difficult to imagine, and the revelation of this secret prayer is a foretaste of heavenly bliss while the soul is still here on earth. 
Only the simple and loving hearts who are earnestly seeking the Lord are found worthy of this. Now you may recite the prayer as many times as you wish. Call on the name of of Jesus all your waking moments without counting, and humbly resign yourself to God's will, expecting help from Him. I believe that He will direct your path and will not forsake you. After receiving this direction, I spent the rest of the summer reciting the name of Jesus vocally, and I enjoyed great peace. During my sleep, I often dreamed that I was praying, and if I happened to meet people during the day, they all seemed as close to me as if they were my kinsmen, even though I did not know them. My thoughts had quieted down completely. I thought only of the prayer to which my mind now began to listen, and my heart produced certain warmth and gladness. The long liturgy of the hermits now seemed short, and it did not tire me as in the past. My solitary hut was to me like a splendid palace, and I did not know how to thank God for sending me a great sinner, such a holy elder, for a director. However, I was not to enjoy the guidance of my beloved and wise father for long, for at the end of the summer he passed away. With tears in my eyes, I thanked him for his paternal love and teaching and said goodbye. I asked for the rosary with which he always prayed in order to have a remembrance of him. Now, I was left alone. The summer had finally passed and the vegetable garden was harvested. The farmer paid me two rubles, filled my knapsack with bread, and dismissed me. Again, I had no place to live so I began to wander from place to place. But now my wandering was very different. Now there was no urgency driving me. The calling on the name of Jesus Christ comforted me on the road. All people seemed good to me, and I felt that everyone loved me. One day I began thinking what I could do with the money, which I had earned guarding the vegetable garden. Then it occurred to me that with the elder gone, I could use a copy of the Philokalia, so I could continue to study interior prayer. I blessed myself and continued reciting the Jesus prayer. When I came to a a provincial city, I began to inquire about the Philokalia in various stores. I did find the book in one store, but the price was three rubles, and I had only two. I tried to make a bargain, but the salesman would not change the price. In the end, he said to me, Go to that church over there and ask the sexton, He has an old copy, and perhaps he will sell it to you for two rubles. So I succeeded in getting an old and battered copy, and I was happy. I repaired it somehow. I sewed a cloth around the cover and placed the book in my knapsack. So now I walk and say the Jesus prayer without ceasing, and it is more precious and sweet to me than anything else in the world. Sometimes I walk 70 or more verses a day and I do not get tired. I am only conscious of praying. When the cold air chills me, I begin saying the prayer with greater intensity, and I warm up. When hunger begins to overcome me, I begin saying the name of Jesus Christ more frequently, and I forget that I wanted to eat. When I become sick and feel rheumatic pain in my back and legs, I pay greater attention to the prayer, and I do not feel the pain. When someone offends me, I remember how sweet the Jesus prayer is, and the offense and anger disappears, and I forget everything. 
I walk in a semi-conscious state, without worries, interests, and temptations. My only desire and attraction is for solitude and ceaseless recitation of the Jesus Prayer. This makes me happy. God knows what this is all about. Certainly all this is on the sensual level. Or as the late elder said, it is a natural and artificial result of habit. I'm not yet ready to make the interior prayer of the heart my own because I am ignorant and unworthy. I wait for God's good time and I trust in the prayers of my deceased spiritual father. Praise be to God that even though I have not attained the ceaseless self-activating prayer of the heart, I now clearly understand what is the meaning of the words of the Apostle Paul. Pray constantly. Chapter 2 For a long time I traveled through various places with the Jesus Prayer as my companion. The prayer was my comfort and my courage in all my wanderings, encounters, and situations. But it occurred to me how convenient it would be to have a permanent place to stay. I would be alone and could study the Philokalia, which up to this time I read only when I took shelter for the night or when I rested during the day. Now, I had a desire to delve into it more deeply and with faith to draw from its wisdom and direction for working out my salvation by means of the prayer of the heart. However, my efforts to find a job were unsuccessful because of my handicapped left arm, which I have had since childhood, so I had to forget about having a place of my own. Instead, I decided to travel in the direction of Siberia where I could visit the tomb of Bishop Innocent of Irkutsk. My intention was to find solitude in the Siberian woods and steppes, which would be conducive to my study and prayer. So I set out on my journey to Siberia, and I continued to recite the Jesus Prayer vocally. After some time, I felt that the prayer was somehow entering the heart by itself. The words of the prayer seemed to be formulated according to the rhythm of the heartbeat, that is, one, Lord, two, Jesus, three, Christ, etc. I stopped vocalizing the prayer and began to listen attentively as the heart spoke, and I remembered the words of my late elder in describing this joy. Then I felt a slight pain in the heart, 
and such love towards Jesus Christ that I wished I could throw myself at his feet, lovingly embrace them, and thank him for this great consolation which he gave in his mercy and love to his unworthy and sinful creature through his name. Then I experienced a kind of blessing, a blessed warmth in the heart which spread throughout my whole breast. This experience led me to a more diligent reading of the Philokalia to check my feelings and to learn more about the prayer of the heart. Without this test, I was afraid of falling into deception, of seeing natural acts as heavenly ones, and of giving in to pride that I had learned the prayer so quickly. My late spiritual father had warned me of all this, so I walked more by night, and I spent the days sitting under the trees in the forest and reading the Philokalia. Ah, how much new insight and wisdom were revealed to me in this reading. Through this practice I tasted sweetness I had not imagined up to this time. And when some of the accounts were not clear to my dull mind, the prayer of the heart enlightened my understanding, and at times I saw my late elder in my dreams, and he explained many things to me. But above all, he directed me, my unthinking soul, to humility. I spent almost two summer months in such blessedness. I walked mostly through the woods and on country roads, and if I passed a village, I would stop and ask for some bread, a handful of salt, and some water, and then I would continue my journey for about a hundred versts. Either because of my sinfulness, or because I had to learn certain lessons about spiritual life, at the end of the summer there were trials in store for me. I was walking on a wide road when towards evening two men, who looked like soldiers, caught up with me and demanded money. When I tried to tell them that I did not have even a kopeck, they did not believe me and impudently cried, You are lying! Pilgrims collect a lot of money, one of the men remarked. Why continue to speak with me? And he hit me in the head with a club so that I fell to the ground unconscious. I don't know how long I lay there unconscious, but when I came to, I saw that I was lying in the woods close to the road all torn, and my knapsack was gone. Only the cord on which I carried it was there. Praise be to God that they did not take my passport, which I kept in my old cap for convenience sake. If the authorities asked for it, I could easily get it, get to it. I got up and began to weep bitterly, not so much because of the pain in my head as for my lost books, the Bible, and the Philokalia were in the knapsack, and now they were gone. Day and night I could not stop my tears and sorrow as I thought. Where is the Bible which I read since I was a little boy, which I always kept close to my heart? Where is my Philokalia from which I gained so much guidance and comfort? I was most unhappy without my two treasures, for I had not been sufficiently fed on them. It would have been better if they had killed me than to have left me without my spiritual nourishment. How could I ever replace those books? For two days I could hardly move my feet. Sorrow had so exhausted me, and on the third day I lost all my strength and slumped under the bushes and fell asleep. I had a dream. 
I was in the hermitage in the cell of my spiritual father, grieving over my loss. The elder comforted me and said, This is a lesson for you on detachment from material things so that your path to heaven will be more direct. This was permitted so that you would not fall into spiritual complacency. God wants a Christian to renounce completely his will, his desires, and his weakness and give himself up to God's will totally. He directs all happenings for the salvation of man. He wants everyone to be saved. You can trust God not to allow you to be tried beyond your strength, and with any trial he will give you a way out of it and the strength to bear it, 1 Corinthians 10.13. Soon your joy will far surpass your present suffering. At these words I woke up feeling strengthened. Light and peace seemed to flood my soul. May God's will be done, I said. I blessed myself and started on my way. The prayer once again began to function in my heart, and I walked in peace for three days. Then suddenly I saw on the road a group of prisoners under military escort. When I came all the way up to them, I recognized the two men who had robbed me, and as they were some distance from the others, I fell at their feet and earnestly implored them to tell me what had happened to my books. At first they did not pay attention to me. And then one of them said, If you will give us something, then we will tell you where they are. Give us a ruble. I swore that I would give them a ruble without fail, even if I had to beg for it. And I offered them my passport as a pledge. They told me that the books were in the cart with the other stolen goods. How can I get them? I asked. Asked the officer in charge of the transport. I went to the officer and explained my situation to him in detail. Among other things, he asked me, Can you really read the Bible? Not only can I read, but I can write also, I answered. You can see my name in the Bible, and you can check it against my passport. The officer then told me, These swindlers, the runaway soldiers, lived in dugouts and robbed many people. Yesterday evening, a clever coachman caught them as they were about to steal a troika from him. Very likely your books are here, and I will give them to you. But there is no need for you to leave the transport. You can stay with us for the night. The station is only about four versts away. I gladly walked by the officer's riding horse, and we continued with our conversation. I noticed that he was a good and honest man of middle years. He asked about my origins and destination, and I answered all his questions with complete honesty. Soon we came to the station. He found my books, gave them to me, and again invited me to spend the night with him. I accepted his invitation and stayed. When I received my books, I was so overjoyed that I did not know how to thank God. I placed them close to my heart and held them there for so long that my hands became stiff. Tears of joy streamed down my face and my heart beat as if in ecstasy. The officer, seeing this display of affection, said to me, It is quite obvious that you love the Bible. In my joy, I could not even answer him, and I just continued crying. He went on, Dear brother, I also read the gospel every day. With this, he unbuttoned his coat and pulled out a small Kiev edition of the gospels bound in silver. Sit down, and I will tell you what brought me to this, and let's have some supper. 
We sat down to table and the officer began his story. I have served in the army ever since I was quite young. I knew my duties and was a favorite of my superiors as a conscientious officer. But I was young, as were also my friends, and unhappily I started drinking. I went from bad to worse until drinking became an illness. When I did not drink, I was a good officer. But when I would start drinking, then I would have to go to bed for six weeks. My superiors were patient with me for a long time. But finally, for rudeness to the commanding officer while I was drunk, they reduced my rank to private and transferred me to a garrison for three years. They threatened me with more severe punishment if I would not improve and give up drinking. In this unfortunate condition, all my efforts at self-control were of no avail until I could not stay sober for any length of time. And then I heard that I was to be sent to the guardhouse and I was beside myself with anguish. One day, I was sitting in the barracks deep in thought. A monk came in to beg alms for the church. Those who had money gave what they could. When he approached me, he asked, Why are you so downcast? We started talking, and I told him the cause of my grief. The monk sympathized with my situation and said, My brother was once in a similar position, and I will tell you how he was cured. His spiritual father gave him a copy of the Gospels and strongly urged him to read a chapter whenever he wanted to take a drink. If the desire for a drink did not leave him after he read one chapter, he was encouraged to read another, and if necessary, still another. My brother followed his advice, and after some time, he lost all desire for alcoholic beverages. It is now 15 years since he has touched a drop of alcohol. Why don't you do the same, and you will discover how beneficial the reading of the Gospels can be. I have a copy at home, and will gladly bring it to you. I wasn't very open to this idea, so I objected. How can your Gospels help when neither my efforts at self-control nor medical aid could keep me sober? I spoke in this way because I never read the Gospels. Give it a chance, continued the monk reassuringly, and you will find it very helpful. The next day, he brought me this copy of the Gospels. I opened it, browsed through it, and said, I will not take it, for I cannot understand it. I am not accustomed to reading Church Slavonic. The monk did not give up, but continued to encourage me and explain that God's special power is present in the Gospel through His words. He went on, At the beginning, be concerned only with reading it diligently. Understanding will come later. One holy man says that even when you don't understand the word of God, the demons do and they tremble. And the passion for drink is without a doubt their work. And St. John Chrysostom, in speaking about the power of the word of God, says that the very room where the gospel is kept has the power to ward off spirits of darkness and thwart their intrigues. I do not recall what I gave the monk when I took the copy of the Gospels from him, but I placed the book in my trunk with my other belongings and forgot about it. Sometime later, a strong desire to have a drink took hold of me, and I opened the trunk to get some money and run to the tavern. But I saw the copy of the Gospels 
before I got to the money, and I remembered clearly what the monk had told me. I opened the book and read the first chapter of Matthew without understanding anything. Again, I remembered the monk's words. At the beginning, be concerned only with reading it diligently. Understanding will come later. Chapter and found it a bit more comprehensible. Shortly after, I began reading the third chapter. The curfew bell rang and it was no longer possible for me to leave the barracks. In the morning, my first thought was to get a drink. But then I decided to read another chapter to see what would happen. I read it and did not go. Again I wanted a drink, but I started reading, and I felt better. This gave me courage, and with every temptation for a drink, I began reading a chapter from the Gospels. The more I read, the easier it became, and when I finally finished reading all four Gospels, the compulsion for drink had disappeared completely. I was repelled by the very thought of it. It is now twenty years since I stopped drinking alcoholic beverages. Everyone was surprised at the change that took place in me, and after three years I was reinstated as an officer and then climbed up the ranks until I was made a commanding officer. Later I married a fine woman. We have saved some money which we now share with the poor. Now I have a grown son who is a fine lad and he also is an officer in the army. When I was cured of my drinking, I made a vow to read the Gospels every day, the account of one evangelist in 24 hours, and I allow no obstacle to interfere with this practice. When duties and responsibilities are great and I am very tired, when I retire at night, then I have my wife or my son read one Gospel to me, and in this way I am faithful to my promise. Out of gratitude and for the glory of God, I had this Gospel bound in silver and I carry it on my breast faithfully. I was glad to hear the captain relate his story, and then I added, I know of a similar case. In the factory of our village, there was a skilled worker, a good and valuable foreman, who unhappily fell into the habit of drinking. Then a God-fearing man suggested that he say the Jesus prayer 33 times in honor of the Blessed Trinity and the 33 years of Christ's earthly life. The foreman took this advice to heart, began reciting the Jesus prayer, and soon gave up drinking completely. And what is more, within three years of this experience, he entered a monastery. And what is more valuable, the Jesus prayer or the gospel? asked the captain. They are equal in importance, I answered, because the holy name of Jesus Christ contains within itself all the truths of the gospel. The Holy Fathers say that the Jesus Prayer is the abbreviated form of the Gospel. After this conversation we prayed. The captain then read the Gospel according to St. Mark while I listened and prayed within my heart. At two o'clock in the morning we finished and went to bed. From habit I arose early the next morning, while all were yet asleep, and as soon as there was sufficient light I threw myself into my beloved Philokalia. With what joy I opened it! It was similar to a reunion between a father and a son after a long absence, or a reunion with a friend who rose from the dead. I kissed the book, thanked God for returning it to me, and began reading the section of Theoleptus of Philadelphia, in which he explains that a man can perform three distinct actions at the same time. While sitting at table, he can nourish his body, listen to spiritual reading, and pray interiorly. 
With great joy, I remembered the previous evening, which illustrated this reading, and I realized that the mind and the heart are not the same. When the captain got up, I went to thank him for his hospitality and to say goodbye. He gave me some tea and a ruble, and then we parted. After walking some distance, I remembered my promise to the soldier, for I now unexpectedly had a ruble. For a moment there was a conflict in my mind. Should I or should I not give it to them? After all, they had beaten me and robbed me, and since they were under arrest, they could not use the money anyway. But I also thought of what is written in the Bible. If your enemy is hungry, you should give him food. And Christ himself says, love your enemies. And if a man takes you to law and would have your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So in the end, I returned to the station. And as I came close to it, I noticed that the bandits were out. They were ready to be transported to another station. I ran hurriedly towards the two men who had robbed me, gave them the ruble and said, Repent and pray. Jesus Christ loves you and will not abandon you. Then I left them and went on my way. I walked for about 50 verses on a big road, and then I decided to take a country road in order to have more solitude to read the Philokalia. For a long time I went through the woods, and only occasionally would I see a village. Sometimes I would spend the whole day in the forest conscientiously reading the Philokalia. I was getting knowledge and wisdom from this book and my heart was becoming kindled towards union with God by means of the interior prayer which I was learning. But at times I felt downcast that I had not permanent place where I could study peacefully and continuously. During this time I also read the Bible and I felt that I was beginning to understand it more clearly. In the past so much seemed incomprehensible and I was often in doubt. The Holy Fathers are right in saying that the Philokalia is a key to the mysteries found in Holy Scripture. My earnest reading of the Philokalia was helping me to understand God's Word. I was beginning to get an insight into such ideas as the conversion of the heart or real prayer, worship in the Spirit and in truth. The Kingdom of God is within us. The Spirit Himself expresses our plea in a way that could never be put into words. Abide in me. Son, give me your heart. Put on Christ. The pledge, the spirit that we carry in our hearts. The call of the heart, Abba, Father, etc. When I began to pray with the heart, everything around me became transformed. And I saw it in a new and delightful way. The trees, the grass, the earth, the air, the light. And everything seemed to be saying to me that it exists to witness to God's love for man and that it prays and sings of God's glory. Now I understand what I had read in the Philokalia about the creature's knowledge of speech, and I saw how it was possible to communicate with God's creation. For a long time I continued walking in this manner, and then I came upon such a deserted area that for three days I did not see a village. My bread was all gone and I became very hungry and fatigued. What if I die of hunger, I thought. But as soon as I began to pray with the heart, the fatigue passed. I resigned myself to the will of God and once again I was happy and at peace. Soon after, as I was passing by a very thick forest, 
I suddenly saw a dog running out of the woods. As I called the dog to myself and played with him for a while, I was thinking that this was indeed divine providence. Undoubtedly, there were animals in these woods, and this dog belonged either to a shepherd or to a hunter. I would be able to get a bit of bread somehow, or at least ask about the nearest village. The dog frisked about me for a while, and then, seeing that I had nothing to give him, ran back on the same narrow path from which he came. I followed the footpath some distance, and then saw the dog in his hole barking. From behind a large tree came a middle-aged man, emaciated and pale. He asked me how I happened to come here, and I in turn asked him what he was doing in that solitary place, and so we started a friendly conversation. The man invited me to his hut and told me that he was a woodman guarding the forest, which had been sold to be felled. He gave me some bread and salt, and we continued our conversation. How I envy you, I said. You can live here in peaceful solitude, away from people, not like me, roaming from place to place and jostling among all kinds of people. You are welcome to live here also, he said. There is an old hut not far from here which belonged to the former woodsman, and though it is in disrepair, it is possible to live in it during the summer. As long as you have your passport, you can stay here. We will have enough bread, as I have some brought to me from the village every week, and close by we have a brook which never dries. For the past ten years, brother, I also have eaten only bread and drunk water, nothing else. But here's the situation. In the fall, when harvesting is finished, then about two hundred workmen will come to cut down this forest, and then neither you nor I can live here. I was so happy that I did not know how to thank God for this blessing, and I was ready to fall at my benefactor's feet. What I had desired and longed for, I now unexpectedly received. I would have almost four months of solitude, and I could use this quiet and peaceful time for careful reading of the Philokalia. I could learn more about attaining the ceaseless prayer of the heart, and so... I gladly accepted the temporary lodging which was offered to me. Then I talked some more with my host and brother, and he began to tell me about his ideas on life. I was a respected citizen in my village, he said. I had my own business. I dyed cotton and linen fabrics, and I was satisfied with my life, though I was not without sin. I cheated my customers. I swore and drank and quarreled. There was an old lector in our village who had a very old book about the Last Judgment. He would make the rounds among the Orthodox Christians, and for a small donation he would read to them from this book. He visited me also. For ten kopecks he would read through the night, till cockrow. And as I worked, I heard how the angels will blow their trumpets, and God will judge the living and the dead, how the living will change and the dead will rise. I heard about the sufferings of hell, about the fire, the pitch, and the worms. Once, as I listened, I was overwhelmed with a sudden terror, and I began thinking of changing my lifestyle. Perhaps I could make up for my sins. I thought and thought and finally gave up my business, sold my house, and took this job. I only asked that the community would provide me with bread, clothes, and candles for the services. 
So this is how I lived for more than 10 years. I eat only bread and drink water once a day. Every morning I rise at cockrow and make prostrations till dawn. When I pray, I light seven candles before the icons. During the day, when I guard the forest, I wear heavy chains next to my skin. I do not use abusive language, do not quarrel with anyone, do not drink beer or wine, and I have never had anything to do with women. At first, this lifestyle appealed to me, but lately, I've been plagued with disturbing thoughts. God only knows whether it is possible to make up for one's sins, and life is full of hardship. Is what I heard from the book really true? Do people really rise from the dead? Even the dust is gone from a person who died a hundred years ago, and who knows whether there is a hell. No one has ever returned from the other world. It seems to me that when a man dies, his body decays and he disappears without leaving a trace. And it is possible that the book was written by clerics and spiritual leaders to frighten us, ignorant ones, so that we would live more humbly. Life on earth is difficult. There is so little joy in it. And if there is nothing in the next world, then what is it all about? Isn't it better to take life more lightly and live more happily? Thoughts like these war against me and I wonder whether I should not return to my former work. I felt sorry for him when I heard all this and I thought, they say that only the educated and intelligent ones are free thinkers who do not believe in anything. But here, one of our peasants is full of doubt and skepticism. It is easy to see that the world of darkness has access to all and perhaps even more to the uneducated ones. For this reason, it is necessary as much as possible to acquire wisdom and to strengthen oneself for the word of God against the spiritual enemy. So, in order to help this brother and to strengthen his faith, I took the Philokalia out of my knapsack, opened it to chapter 109 of Venerable Hezekius, read it, and then began to explain to him that abstaining from sinful actions and fear of suffering are not sufficient for spiritual life, that only the guarding of the mind and purity of heart will free one's soul from sinful thoughts, that inner freedom can be attained only through interior prayer, and I repeated, not through fear of suffering of hell, or even the desire for the bliss of heaven. The Holy Fathers consider even heroic deeds as the acts of a hireling. They claim that the fear of suffering is the way of a slave and that the desire for a reward is the way of a hireling. But God wants us to come to him on the path of a son, motivated by love and zeal for his glory. We should conduct ourselves with honor and enjoy his saving presence in our hearts and souls. No matter how you drive yourself, I continued, how much effort you exert and what kind of physical feats you accomplish, if you do not constantly walk in the presence of God with ceaseless prayer in your heart, then you will never have peace from disturbing thoughts and you will always have an inclination towards sin, even in small matters. I suggest, brother, that you learn how to recite the Jesus prayer unceasingly. It should be easy for you to do this here in solitude, and you can soon reap its benefits. You will be free from ungodly thoughts and you will experience both faith and love in Jesus Christ. You will know how the dead will rise and you will truly understand how God will judge the living and the dead. 
you will be surprised at the comfort and joy the prayer will bring into your heart. You will no longer be bored or confused about your repentant form of life. Then, to the best of my ability, and as directed by the Holy Spirit and the writings of the Holy Fathers, I taught him how to begin and how to continue the Jesus prayer. He seemed receptive to all this and became peaceful. So we parted and I shot myself in the little dilapidated hut which he had shown me. Dear Lord, what joy, peace, and consolation I experienced the moment I crossed the threshold of that hut, which seemed to me like a magnificent royal palace full of every comfort and luxury. With joyful tears, I thank God for this solitude and thought. Now in this peace and quiet, I should apply myself conscientiously to my study and ask God for understanding. So I began to read the Philokalia very attentively from beginning to end. In a short time, I read the whole book, and I realized what wisdom, holiness, and depth it contained. However, since the book contains so many varied themes and exhortations, I could not understand everything. I was unable to pull all the ideas together, particularly about interior prayer, so that I could learn the ceaseless self-activating prayer of the heart. And this is precisely what I longed for, as St. Paul directs. Be ambitious for the higher gifts, and never try to suppress the Spirit. I thought and thought, but was incapable of understanding this, and there was no one to explain it to me. I will implore the Lord in prayer, I thought, and He will help me to understand it somehow. So I prayed ceaselessly for twenty-four hours, not stopping even for a little while. My thoughts quieted down and I fell asleep. I had a dream in which I saw myself in the cell of my late elder, and he was explaining the Philokalia to me. This book is full of wisdom. It is a secret treasure of illustrations of the hidden judgments of God. And although it is not readily available to everyone, it does contain instructions for all. It has profound sayings for the wise and simple ones, for the simple-minded. You simple ones therefore ought not to read it in chronological order, for that order is theological. The uneducated person wishing to learn about interior prayer should read the Philokalia in the following order. First, the book of Nisiphorus, the solitary, in the second part. Second, the book of Gregory of Sinai, with the exception of the short chapters. Third, Simeon, the new theologian, about the three forms of prayers and the lesson on faith. And fourth, the book of Callistus and Ignatius. The writings of these fathers contain complete direction about interior prayer of the heart and can be easily understood by everyone. If, however, you desire even more simple information regarding interior prayer, then find the summarized version of Patriarch Callistos of Constantinople in the fourth part of the book. I held the book of the Philokalia in my hands and was looking for the mentioned section, but I was slow in finding it. Then the elder himself turned a few pages and said, Here it is. I will mark it for you. And picking up a piece of charcoal from the floor, he made a mark in the margin where the passage was found. I listened attentively to all that the elder explained and tried to remember it. It was still dark when I woke up, so I lay there and recalled the dream I had and what the elder had told me. 
I found myself thinking God knows whether it was the soul of the elder which I saw, or perhaps just my imagination since I think so much about the elder and the Philokalia. At dawn I got up with the perplexing question in my mind, and to my astonishment I saw on the stone which served as my table the copy of the Philokalia, open to that very page which the elder had shown, and the section marked exactly as I saw in the dream, and even the charcoal was lying beside the book. I was completely amazed, as I remembered distinctly that the book was not there the night before. It was closed and was at the head of the bed, and I was also sure that there was no mark of any kind in that section before. This incident strengthened my faith in dreams and in the holiness of my departed spiritual father. Now I began to read the Philokalia in the order pointed out to me, and I read it once and then a second time. The reading enkindled in my heart a desire and zeal to experience all that I read, for now I understood clearly what interior prayer is, what means are necessary to reach it, what the results of it are, how it fills the heart and soul with joy, and how to recognize whether that joy is from God or from nature, or whether it is a deception. My first practical step was to find the place of the heart according to the direction of St. Simeon the New Theologian. I closed my eyes and imagined looking into my heart. My desire was to visualize the heart in the left breast and to listen attentively to its beating. At first, I was occupied like this for half an hour several times a day. At the beginning, I was not aware of anything but darkness. And then slowly, the heart appeared and I noticed its movement. Then I began to say the Jesus prayer interiorly to the rhythm of my breathing according to the direction of St. Gregory of Sinai and of Callistus and Ignatius, that is, while looking into the heart and inhaling I said, Lord Jesus Christ, and while exhaling, have mercy on me. At first I did this for an hour or two, and then I increased it so that in the end I spent practically the entire day in this exercise. When doubts or heaviness or slothfulness would come upon me, I would promptly read this section of the Philokalia, which speaks of the activity of the heart, and in this way I would renew my desire and zeal for prayer. After three weeks I began to feel pain in the heart, then a very pleasant warmth, delight, and peace. This encouraged me to even more earnest practice of the prayer, so that all my thoughts were now directed to this, and I experienced great joy. From this time, periodically I began to experience various feelings and perceptions in my heart and mind. Sometimes I felt a sweet burning in my heart and such ease, freedom, and consolation that I seemed to be transformed and caught up in ecstasy. Sometimes I experienced a burning love towards Jesus Christ and all of God's creation. Sometimes I shed joyful tears and thanksgiving to God for His mercy to me, a great sinner. Sometimes difficult concepts became crystal clear and new ideas came to me which of myself I could not have imagined. Sometimes the warmth of the heart overflowed throughout my being, and with tenderness I experienced God's presence within me. 
Sometimes I felt great joy in calling on the name of Jesus Christ, and I realized the meaning of the words, the kingdom of God is within you. These and similar consolations led me to conclude that the fruits of the prayer of the heart can be experienced in three ways, in the spirit, in the emotions, and in revelations. In the spirit, one can experience the sweetness of the love of God, inner peace, purity of thought, awareness of God's presence, and ecstasy. In the emotions, a pleasant warmth of the heart, a feeling of delight throughout one's being, joyful bubbling in the heart, lightness and courage, joy of life, and indifference to sickness and sorrow. And in Revelation, one receives the enlightenment of the mind, understanding of Holy Scripture, knowledge of speech of all creatures, renunciations of vanities, awareness of the sweetness of interior life, and confidence in the nearness of God and His love for us. After spending almost five months in this prayerful occupation and enjoyment of the mentioned gifts, I got so accustomed to the prayer of the heart that I practiced it without ceasing and finally I felt that the prayer of itself, without any effort on my part, began to function both in my mind and heart. It was active both day and night without the slightest interruption. Regardless of what I was doing, my soul praised God and my heart overflowed with joy. Then came the time for the force to be cut. The workers began coming and it was necessary for me to leave my silent dwelling. I thanked the forester for his hospitality, said my prayers, kissed the spot of earth on which God made me worthy of his mercy, took the knapsack with my books and left. For a very long time, I wandered from place to place until I reached Irkutsk. Self-activating prayer of the heart was my consolation and my joy on the entire journey. It brought me comfort in various degrees under all circumstances. Wherever I found myself or whatever I was doing, it did not distract me from anything and nothing seemed to diminish it. If I had something to do, then the prayer flowed in me and the action was done more quickly. If I attentively listened to something or read, the prayer did not cease and I simultaneously felt the one and the other, almost as if there were two of me, as if I had two souls in my body. My God, how mysterious man is. Yahweh, what variety you have created, arranging everything so wisely. Psalm 104.24 In my wandering, I also encountered many mysterious incidents. To speak about all of them would take more than 24 hours, but I would like to mention a few of them. One early evening in winter, I was walking alone through the woods towards a town, which I could already see and where I wanted to find lodging. Suddenly a big wolf came upon me and jumped at me, I had the woolen prayer rope which had belonged to my late elder in my hands and in my attempt to defend myself with the prayer rope slipped out of my hands and lodged around the neck of the wolf. The wolf jumped away from me and got caught in a thorny bush with his hind legs and with the prayer rope on a branch of a dry tree. 
He tried desperately to free himself, but was unable to because the prayer rope was choking him. With faith, I blessed myself and went to free the wolf and especially to get my precious prayer rope. For I feared that the wolf would run away with it. And sure enough, the moment I approached the wolf and touched the prayer rope, he broke it and ran away without leaving a trace. I thanked God for his help in retrieving my prayer rope, and I remembered my late elder. Then I happily reached the town and stopped at an inn to ask for lodging. As I came inside the house, I saw two distinguished-looking men, one elderly and the other middle-aged and rather stout. They were sitting at a table in the far corner of the room, drinking tea. I asked the peasant who was attending to their horses about them, and he told me that the older man was a public school teacher and the other a clerk of the district court. Both of the men are of noble birth, he said, and I am taking them to market about twenty versts from here. I sat there for a while and then asked the lady of the house for a needle and thread, came towards the light of the candle and began mending my broken prayer rope. The clerk looked at me and asked, Were you making prostration so earnestly that you even broke your prayer rope? No, it was not I who broke it. It was a wolf, I said. Really, do wolves pray? asked the clerk, smiling. So I gave them the details of the incident, which had just occurred, and also explained how valuable the the prayer rope is to me. The clerk again smiled and said, You hypocrites always see miracles. What is holy in what happened? You simply flung the prayer rope at the wolf and he got scared and ran away. Dogs and wolves are afraid when you throw anything at them, and of course they do not wish to get caught in the woods. There is so much that is happening in the world, must we believe that everything is miraculous? When the teacher heard this, he joined the conversation and said to the clerk, Don't draw such conclusions, sir. You are not familiar with this subject matter. I see in the narrative of this peasant the mystery of nature, both sensual and spiritual. How is that? asked the clerk. The teacher responded, Though you have not been exposed to higher learning, you must have studied the history of the Old and New Testaments, published for schools in the form of question and answers. Do you recall that when the first man, Adam, was in his innocent state, all creation was subject to him, and that the animals approached him with fear and he named them. The elder to whom this prayer rope belonged was a holy man, and holiness is nothing else than the sinner's return from his sinful state to the innocent state of the first man by means of self-discipline. When the soul of a man becomes holy, then the body is holy also, and the prayer rope which was constantly in the hands of the holy elder became empowered with his touch and spirit. It acquired, so to speak, the power of the first man's innocence. This is what we mean by a spiritual mystery of nature, and all animals in natural succession, even to this day, feel that power through the sense of smell, since the nose is the chief sensory organ in animals. You learned ones can have your wisdom and power, and I take things more simply. I pour a glass of vodka, and when I get it down, then I will have power, said the clerk, as he went towards the cupboard. That is your choice, said the teacher, but leave the spiritual domain to us. The words of the teacher pleased me, and I went to him and said, Sir, I take courage to tell you something about my elder. And I proceeded to tell him about my dream and how the elder taught me and how he marked the philokalia for me. The teacher listened attentively, 
and the clerk was lying on the bench, cried, It is true that from too much reading of the Bible one can lose one's wit. And that is how it is. What kind of a ghost would mark your book during the night? You simply pushed the book on the floor in your sleep, and it was marred with soot. There you have a miracle. Ah, these tricksters. I have seen very much of your kind, brother. After muttering this, the clerk turned to the wall and fell asleep. And I turned to the teacher and said, If I may, I would like to show you the book which was marked, and you can see that it was not marred with soot. I took the philokalia from my knapsack, showed it to him, and commented on the awesomeness of the mystery which enables a soul without a body to pick up a piece of charcoal and write. The teacher examined the marked page and said, This is a spiritual mystery and I will explain it to you. When the spirits need a physical form in which to appear before a living person, they create a visible body for themselves out of ethers and then return it to the atmosphere when they no longer need it. Because the elements of the atmosphere from which the body is made have elasticity, that is, they can expand and contract, the soul, when it is clothed with these elements, has the ability to perform different actions, including writing. And what kind of book is that? May I have a look at it? He took the Philokalia and opened it to the writings of Simeon the New Theologian and said, Ah, this is a theological treatise. I have never seen it. Sir, I said, this book is mostly about interior prayer of the heart. It is a detailed work of 25 holy fathers on prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. I know something about interior prayer, said the teacher. So I bowed to him and asked him to share with me his ideas about interior prayer. It is written in the New Testament that man and all creation serve vanity against their will, and that everything naturally groans and struggles to enter into the freedom of God's sons. Romans 8, 20-23 This mysterious groaning of creation and the innate aspiration of the soul is interior prayer. There is really not much one can learn about it. It is a natural quality in man. But how does one discover it, experience it in one's heart, and consciously practice it so that it can bring comfort and salvation, I asked. I don't know whether anything is written about it in the theological tracts, answered the teacher. Well, here it is in this book, I said. The subject is discussed here in great detail. The teacher noted the title and said, I'll definitely order this book from Tobolsk and we'll study it carefully. Then we parted. When I left that place, I thanked God for the fruitful discussion with the teacher and I prayed for the clerk that God would make it possible for him to read the Philokalia at least once and in that way lead him to salvation. Another incident occurred in the spring. I came into one village and happened to get lodging with a priest. He was a good man and he lived alone. After I stayed with him for three days and he had a chance to get to know me a little, he said to me, Stay with me and work for me. I need an honest and conscientious man. You see that we are in the process of building a new stone church next to the old wooden one, and I cannot find a trustworthy man who would supervise the workers and also take care of the offerings for the building. I can see that you are just the man I need, and this job will be conducive to your lifestyle. You can sit alone in the chapel and pray. There is even a special room for the watchman. Please stay at least until the church is finished. At the beginning, I was quite reluctant to stay there, but the priest was so convincing that in the end I had to agree. So, 
I stayed in the chapel through the summer, and at first I found it peaceful and conducive to prayer, even though many came to the chapel, especially on feast days. Some came to pray, others to look, and still others to steal something from the collection plate. Sometimes I would be reading the Bible or the Philokalia, and people would, would talk to me or ask me to read something for them. When I had been there for some time, I noticed a peasant girl coming to the chapel frequently and praying for long periods of time. Since her voice was audible, I realized that she was saying some strange and unorthodox prayer, and I asked where she learned them. She replied that she learned them from her pious mother, but that her father was a schismatic who belonged to a sect without priesthood. I was sad to hear this and suggested that she pray correctly, that is, according to the tradition of the church. I explained the Our Father and the Hail Mary to her and also said, Recite the Jesus Prayer frequently, for it is the most efficacious of all prayers, and through it you can work out your salvation. The girl readily accepted my advice and in all simplicity began to do what I told her. And guess what happened? After a little while, she told me that she became so accustomed to the Jesus Prayer that she had the inclination to pray continuously, that she experienced consolation and joy when she prayed, and that when she stopped, she had the desire to pray again. I was happy to hear this and suggested that she continue to pray more frequently in the name of Jesus Christ. The end of the summer was approaching. Now many of the people who visited the chapel came not only for me to read to them or to ask for advice, but they came with all kinds of human problems and even in search of lost articles. They seemed to regard me as a seer or as a prophet. The already mentioned village girl also came with a problem. Her father had decided to marry her to a schismatic by a layperson instead of a priest. What kind of a lawful wedding is that? she exclaimed. It is the same as fornication. I am ready to run away and go where my eyes will lead. I said to her, where will you run? They will quickly find you. It is not possible for you to hide and not be found. You would had better pray to God with greater fervor about this so that your father has a change of heart and will guard your soul from heresy and sin. This will be much more beneficial than running away. As time went on, things became unbearable for me in the chapel. It was noisy and distracting. Then finally the summer ended and I decided to leave the chapel and continue with my journey as before. I approached the priest and began to explain, You know my situation, Father. I need silence for prayer, but here it is quite distracting for me. I kept my word and stayed through the summer. Now please give me your blessing for my solitary journey. The priest was unwilling to let me go and tried to talk me out of leaving. What interferes with your prayer here? You don't have any kind of work besides sitting in the chapel. That is an easy way to earn your bread, and you can pray day and night there, brother, and really live with God. This place really needs you. When people come to the chapel, you don't speak nonsense with them, and the offerings for the church have increased. This work is more meritorious before God than your solitary prayer. What do you get from solitude? It is more joyful to pray with other people. God did not create man to be alone, to be preoccupied with himself. People should help one another and lead one another towards salvation in whatever way they can learn. Look at the saints and the universal church teachers. They bustled and worked for the church day and night. They preached everywhere and did not sit in solitude and did not hide from people. Father, everyone has his gift from God, I said. 
There were many preachers, but also many hermits. Each one followed his inclination and believed that God himself was directing him on his spiritual journey. And what will you say about the saints who left their religious communities and flew to the desert for solitude so that they would not be distracted by people? St. Isaac of Syria left his bishopric for this reason, and Venerable Athanasius of Athens gave up his large monastery because these places were for them a source of temptation and because they truly believed the words of Christ. What then will a man gain if he wins the whole world and lose his own soul? But they were saints, said the priest. If the saints, I answered, were careful not to be spiritually ruined by their association with people, then what remains for the great sinner to do? So in the end, this good priest lovingly sent me on my way. After walking ten versts, I stopped in a village for the night. There was a desperately ill peasant and the place where I stayed, and I suggested to those attending him that they make arrangements for him to receive the Holy Eucharist. They agreed, and in the morning they sent for the village priest. I decided to stay behind to show my respect for the holy gifts and also to pray for this awesome mystery. I came out onto the street, sat down on a mound and waited for a priest to arrive. All of a sudden, the girl who used to pray in the chapel so frequently came running to me from the backyard. How did you get here? I asked. The day was set for my marriage to that schismatic, so I decided to run away. Then she bowed deeply to me and continued, Please be kind and take me with you and help me to get some, to some convent. I do not want to get married. I want to live in a convent and recite the Jesus prayer. Some convent will accept me if you will intercede for me. Where can I take you? I do not know of even one convent in this area. And how can you come with me when you don't have a passport? I don't think that you have a chance of being accepted anywhere, and there is no place to hide at this time. They will quickly find you, return you to your home, and even punish you for vagrancy. You had better go home and pray to God, and if you don't want to get married, then feign some kind of Ill an illness. This is called using a saving pretense, which is what Mother St. Clementa and Venerable Marina did when they took refuge in a, in a men's monastery, as did many others. While he sat there and talked, four men came riding a horse carriage down the road, and they headed straight towards us. They took the girl sat her in the carriage with one of the men and sent them off and the other three tied my hand and took me back to the village where I had spent the summer. To all my attempts to explain they only cried, you hypocrite, we will teach you how to deceive girls. Toward evening they brought me to the village court, put my feet in stocks and placed me in jail until morning when they would have the trial. When my priest friend heard that I was in jail, he came to visit me, brought me supper, comforted me, and said that as my spiritual father, he would defend my character. He spent some time with me and then left. Later that evening, the district judge came through the village and stopped to visit the deputy. He was told what had happened, and he decided to take care of the matter that very evening. And so they brought me to the courtroom. 
We waited for a while before the judge came, and with his hat still on, he sat down and shouted, Epiphan, did your daughter take anything from your house? Uh, Nothing, sir. Is she guilty of anything indecent with this fool? No, sir. Well then, this is what we will do. You take care of your daughter yourself, and we will give a lesson to this young man tomorrow, and then release him with strict orders never to return to this village again. This is all. After saying this, the judge left the room and went to sleep, and I was placed in jail again. In the morning, the police commissioner and his assistant came, gave me a beating, and then released me. I left the jail, praising God that I was found worthy to suffer for his name. This made me happy, and it intensified the prayer of the heart within me. All that had happened seemed not to affect me. It was as if I had watched someone else being so treated. And when they flogged me, the prayer strengthened and consoled me, and I was oblivious of everything. After I walked about four versts, I met the mother of the unwilling bride coming home from the market with her shopping. She said to me, The groom renounced our daughter. He got mad because Akulka ran away from him. She then gave me some bread and pastry, and I went on my way. The weather was pleasant, and I did not care to sleep in any village. Instead, I stopped in the woodland, where I saw two stacks of hay fenced in, and there I made myself comfortable for the night. When I fell asleep, I had a dream in which I was going down the road and reading the account of Anthony the Great in the Philokalia. All of a sudden, my late elder caught up with me and said, Don't read that, but this. And he pointed to the following words in chapter 35 of John of Carpathos. Sometimes the teacher falls into disrespect and suffers trials for those whom he helps spiritually. And when he showed me chapter 41 where it says, Those who assiduously apply themselves to prayer are free from terrible and fierce temptations. He continued and said, Be awake in the spirit and do not grow faint. Remember what the Apostle John said, You have in you one who is greater than anyone in this world. Now you have realized that no trial is greater than man's strength. And with any trial he will give you a way out of it and the strength to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 It was this trust in God's help which strengthened the saints and led them to greater fervor in prayer. They passed their lives in ceaseless prayer, not only for themselves, but out of love for others. Whenever it was possible, they taught and showed this to others. Writing about this subject, St. Gregory Palamas says, Not only should we fulfill God's commandment to pray in the name of Jesus Christ unceasingly, but we should also show this method of prayer to everyone to the religious, to the lay people, to the wise and the simple, to men and women and children. In all without exception, we should try to awaken zeal for ceaseless prayer. Venerable Callistus Telecudus writes in a similar way and says that neither the results of interior prayer, of contemplation, nor any method of raising the soul to God should be kept for oneself alone. Rather, they should be written down for the good of all. And of course, Holy Scripture also reminds us of this responsibility. 
Brother helped by brother is a fortress. Friends are like the bars of a keep. Proverbs 18.19 But under all such circumstances, it is necessary to flee from vainglory and to guard oneself so that the seed of learning about God would not go to the wind. When I awoke, my heart was full of joy and my soul full of strength, and I continued with my journey. After some time, another incident occurred which I would like to share with you. It was the 24th of March, and I had an overwhelming desire to receive the Holy Eucharist on the following day, the feast day of the Annunciation of the Mother of God. I asked about the nearest church, and as it was 30 versts away, I walked the rest of the day and night in order to make it in time for matins. The weather was unusually bad. It rained and snowed, and it was also windy and cold. At what point it was necessary for me to cross a small brook, and as I came to the middle of it, the ice under my feet broke, and I found myself in water up to my waist. And thus, thoroughly wet, I came for matins. I stayed for the liturgy and received Holy Communion. In order to spend that day in complete peace with no interference to my spiritual joy, I asked permission from the sexton of the church to stay in the guardhouse till the next day. I spent that whole day in unspeakable joy and sweetness of heart. I lay on the plank bed of this unheated room intensely absorbed in prayer and as happy as if I were resting in the bosom of Abraham. Love for Jesus Christ and the Mother of God surged in my heart like sweet waves, and my soul was immersed in joyful ecstasy. Only during the night when I felt great aching in my legs did I remember how wet they were. I began to concentrate on the prayer of the heart even more intensely until I lost all awareness of the pain. But in the morning, when I wanted to get up, I realized that I could not move my legs. They were completely numb and stiff. With difficulty, the sexton pulled me off the bed and I sat there for two days without moving. On the third day, the sexton wanted to be rid of me and said, What trouble we will have if you die here? So very, very slowly, I pulled myself on my hands and lay on the steps of the church. For two days I lay there asking for help, but no one paid the least attention to me. Then finally a peasant came by who sat down next to me and began to talk. When he realized what was wrong with me, he said, What will you give me if I cure you? I suffered from the same malady, and I know what medicine will cure it. I have nothing to give you, I answered. And what do you have in your knapsack, he asked. Only dry bread and books. Then... Will you work for me for at least one summer if I cure you? I cannot work, for as you see, I have only one good hand, and the other is almost completely withered. Well, is there anything you can do? he asked. Nothing, really, except read and write. Ah, write! So then teach my son how to write. He can read a little, and I would like for him to learn how to write. Also, but a tutor's fee is twenty rubles. So I agreed to the man's proposal, and with the help of the sexton, he brought me to his old, empty barn. He then began his curing process. In the fields, the backyards, and the rubbish heaps, he collected a bucket full of various kinds of putrid bone of animals and birds. 
He washed the bones and with a stone broke them into small pieces and placed them in a large earthen pot, which he covered with a lid that had a slit in it. Then he turned this pot upside down into another empty pot, which had been placed in a hole in the ground and covered it completely with dirt. On top of this, he arranged a pile of wood and made a fire, which burned for 24 hours. While adding wood to the fire, he said to me, These bones will produce some tar. On the following day, he dug up the pot from the ground with about a pint of thick, reddish, oily liquid with a strong odor as of raw meat. The formerly putrid bones were now white and transparent like mother of pearl. He told me to smear my leg with this liquid five times a day. And this is what happened. After 24 hours, I felt that I could move my toes. On the third day, I could bend my leg. And on the fifth day, I got up with the help of a cane. I walked across the yard. In a word, within a week, my legs were completely well as before. I thanked God for this blessing and thought what great wisdom is hidden in God's creation. Dry, putrid bones, which had almost turned to dust, contain such vital power, color, and smell which brings life to a lifeless body. This is a proof of the resurrection of the body, I thought, and I would have liked to tell this to the stranger with whom I lived, and perhaps in this way dispel his doubts about the resurrection. After being healed in this way, I began to teach the youngster how to write. I used the words of the Jesus prayer as a sample for writing and showed the boy how to join letters and form words. It was quite easy for me to teach him because during the day he worked for an estate manager and came for a lesson only when the manager slept, that is, from dawn to late morning. The boy caught on quickly and began to write in a short while. The man for whom he worked noticed that the boy could write, and he asked him, Who is teaching you how to write? The youngster replied, A wanderer without one arm who lives in our old barn. The manager, who was Polish, got curious and came to see me one day. He found me reading the Philokalia and said, What are you reading? I showed him the book and he exclaimed, Ah, it's the Philokalia. When I lived in Vilna, our parish priest had a copy of this book. However, I heard that the book describes tricks and strange formulas for prayer, and that it was written by Greek monks, that the methods of prayer which it advocates are similar to those practiced in India and Bukhara, where the enthusiasts for prayer try to achieve a tickling of the heart by means of breathing. They foolishly consider this a natural form of prayer revealed to them by God. I think that we should pray simply and the goal of our prayer should be to pay our debts to God. Then he got up and recited the Our Father as Christ had taught. This prayer is sufficient for the whole day, he said, but to ceaselessly repeat the same words can drive one mad and ruin the heart. My dear sir, do not say such things about this holy book. It was not written by ordinary Greek monks, but by the ancient holy men whom even your church recognizes, such as Anthony the Great, Macarius the Great, St. Mark the Ascetic, St. John Chrysostom, and others. My late elder told me that the Indian and Bukharan monks took this method of interior prayer and distorted and ruined it, but all the directives about interior prayer found in the Philokalia have their source in the Word of God. In the Holy Bible, where Christ Jesus directed us to pray the Our Father, He also commanded the prayer of the heart. 
You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Matthew 22:38. Be on your guard, stay awake, because you never know when the time will come. Mark 13:33. Make your home in me as I make mine in you. John 15:4. The Holy Fathers also bring the testimony of King David, who says in the Psalter, How good Yahweh is! Only taste and see. Psalm 34:8. And they explain that the Christian should seek consolation and sweetness in prayer by all means possible, and not merely recite the Our Father once a day. Here I will read for you what the saints think of those who do not try to learn the habit of the prayer of the heart. They write that those who are not interested in ceaseless prayer sin in the following way. Number one, they oppose the inspired word of God. Number two, they do not aspire to a more perfect state of the soul, but are satisfied with only external virtue. They have no hunger and thirst for truth, and therefore are deprived of the bliss and joy of God. And number three, thinking about their exterior virtue, they frequently fall into deception or pride, and in this way fall away. You are reading something very sublime, said the manager. How can we lay people aim to such heights? Well, I will read for you even in more simple terms how good people in very secular surroundings learn ceaseless prayer. I opened the Philokalia to the writing of Simeon the New Theologian and began reading about a young man named George. The manager was impressed and he said to me, May I borrow this book and examine it in my free time? I answered, I can give it to you only for 24 hours because I read it every day and I cannot be without it. Well, at least copy out for me what you have just read, and I will pay you for it. No payment is necessary, I said. I will gladly do it for you, if only God would grant you the gift of zeal for this prayer. And so I promptly copied the passage which I had just read for him. He read it to his wife, and they both liked it. So from time to time, they would invite me to visit them, and I would read from the Philokalia while they drank tea and listened. One day, they asked me to stay for dinner. We were eating fried fish, and the manager's wife, a kind old lady, wasn't careful and got a bone stuck in her throat. We tried our best to help her, but could not, and as she was in great pain, she went to bed. The manager then sent for the doctor, who was about 30 versts away, and I expressed my regrets and went home. During the night, in light sleep, I heard the voice of my elder, but I did not see anyone. The voice said to me, Well, your host cured you, and why don't you help the wife of the manager? God has commanded us to be concerned about our neighbor. I would gladly help, but how? I do not know of any means, I replied. This is what you should do. The woman has a great aversion for olive oil, and she cannot tolerate even the smell of it. Therefore, give her a spoonful of olive oil and drink, and this will cause her to vomit and bring up the bone. The olive oil will also soothe the wound in the throat caused by the bone, and she will get well. But how can I give it to her if she has such an aversion for it? She won't take it, I protested. Ask her husband to hold her while you pour it down her throat by force. I awoke and went quickly to the manager's house and told him what I was directed to do. What will your olive oil do now, he said. She is delirious, her throat is swollen, and she is already choking. However, since olive oil is harmless, let us try it. So he poured some oil into a glass, and somehow we made her swallow it. She immediately began to vomit violently and brought up the bone as well as some blood. Then she felt better and fell asleep. 
In the morning when I went to see how she was doing, she was sitting quietly and having tea with her husband. They were marveling at the cure and especially at how I was told in a dream that she does not like olive oil because no one besides the two of them knew about it. The doctor came and the manager's wife told him what had happened to her and I related how a peasant had cured my legs. The doctor was not surprised at all to hear about these cures and explained that in both of them natural power of healing was active. He then took out his notebook and wrote about these natural cures for future references. The news of this happening spread throughout the district and people began to regard me as a prophet, a doctor and a wise man. They began coming to me with their problems from all sides. They brought me gifts and showed me respect and deference. I took this for a week and then I became afraid that distraction and vainglory would ruin my spiritual life, so I left that place secretly by night. Again I continued with my solitary journey and I experienced such great consolation that I felt as if a mountain had been removed from my shoulders. The prayer brought me more and more joy and at times my heart burned with unspeakable love for Jesus Christ so that my whole being was caught up in ecstasy. The presence of Jesus Christ was so strongly impressed on my mind that thinking about the accounts of the Gospels seemed to bring them right before my eyes. I was touched and cried tears of joy. At times the joy was so great that I cannot begin to describe it. Sometimes for three days at a time I would not go close to a village and in my communion with God I felt as if I were all alone in the world, one great sinner before a merciful and loving God. In solitude I found great comfort and the sweetness in prayer was much more intense than when I was among people. Finally, I made it to Irkutsk, and after paying my respects to the relics of St. Innocent, I wondered where I would go next. I had no desire to stay in Irkutsk for any length of time because it was a very crowded city. But as I thought and walked down the street, a local merchant stopped me and asked, Are you a stranger here? Why don't you come to my house? And he took me to his rich house. He asked me about my background. And when I told him where I came from, he said, You probably would like to go to Jerusalem. That is a holy place without compare. I would gladly go, I answered, but I have no means. I could go as far as the sea on foot, but, but I cannot cross the sea without money. If you'd really like to go, then I will tell you how you can, said the merchant. Last year, I sent one of our citizens from here. I fell at his feet and he said, Listen, I will give you a letter to take to my son, who lives in Odessa and who trades with Constantinople. He has ships and will gladly take you to Constantinople, where he will have one of his salesmen get you a place on a ship going to Jerusalem. It does not cost that much and he will pay for it. I was filled with joy and gratitude and again fell at the feet of my great benefactor. I especially praise God for showing such fatherly love and care to a sinner who does no good to anyone, neither to himself nor others, but who, like a parasite, eats his bread in idleness. I spent three days with this rich merchant. He kept his promise and wrote a letter to his son about me, and so I am now on my way to Odessa with the intention of eventually reaching the holy city of Jerusalem, but I am not sure it is God's will that I will have the privilege of showing my respect to his life-giving grave.
Chapter 3 Before leaving Irkutsk, I visited my spiritual father, with whom I had many talks before, and I said to him, I am on the way to Jerusalem and have stopped by to say goodbye and to thank you for your Christ-like love towards me, an unworthy wanderer. May God bless your journey, he said. But you know, you have told me nothing about yourself, who you are and where you come from. I have heard a great deal about your wanderings, but I would also like to know about your origins and your way of life before you began your pilgrimage. Fine, I said, I will gladly tell you this brief part of my personal history also. I was born in a village in the Orlovsky province, and after my mother and father passed away, I was left with my older brother. He was ten years old, and I was two, going on three. My grandfather, who was an upright and prosperous man, took us in. Grandfather owned and managed an inn on the main road of the town, and because of his kindness, the house was always full of visitors. And so we lived with my grandfather. My brother was a playful lad and was always running around the town, but I stayed close by my grandfather most of the time. For the holy days, grandfather would take us to church with him, and at home he often read the Bible to us, this one that I have with me here. My brother went astray when he grew up. He began drinking. One day, when I was seven years old, my brother and I were resting on the hearth, and he violently pushed me off and hurt my left hand. From that day, my left hand has been rendered useless, as it is practically all withered. When my grandfather realized that I was not suited for farm work, he began to make a literate boy out of me. He started to teach me how to read, and as there was no primer for me to use, he taught me from the Bible. Pointing to a phrase, he would encourage me to note the makeup of the words and to remember the letters. I still do not know how, but after some time of repeating after him, I finally learned how to read. Later, when my grandfather's sight began to fail, he would ask me to read out loud from the Bible, and he would correct me. A district clerk lodged with us quite frequently, and I was fascinated by his beautiful handwriting. I began to imitate him and to make words, and when he saw my interest, he gave me paper, showed me how to write, and even made quill pens for me. Thus, I learned how to write. Grandfather was overjoyed at my accomplishment and spoke to me in this way. Now that God has made it possible for you to become a real literate man, thank him for this blessing and pray more frequently. And so, we now went to church for all the services and at home we prayed even more often. I read The Lord Have Mercy, Psalm 51, while grandfather and grandmother made prostrations or knelt. When I was 17 years old, my grandmother died. Grandfather was eager for me to marry, so he said to me, We don't have a housekeeper in the house. How can we get along without a woman? Since your older brother went astray, I would like you to get married. I was reluctant, and in protest showed him my handicapped arm. But grandfather insisted, and I was married to a sedate good girl of twenty. A year passed, and grandfather became mortally ill. He called me to his side and said, The house and the entire inheritance is yours. Live according to your conscience and do not cheat anyone. But especially, pray to God, for all is from Him. Do not place your trust in anything but God. Go to church, read the Bible, and remember to pray for grandmother and me. 
here's some money for you, a thousand rubles. Be careful neither to squander it nor to be stingy, and remember to give to the poor and to the church. So my grandfather died and I buried him. My brother became envious because the entire inheritance was left to me. He was filled with rage against me, and with the enemy on his side, he even planned to kill me. So when he had the chance, he came by night while we were asleep, and there were no lodgers. He broke into the room where the money was kept, took the money, and set the house on fire. By the time my wife and I realized what was happening, the fire had spread throughout the whole house and courtyard, and we barely escaped with our lives. We escaped through a window in our night clothes. We kept the Bible under our pillow, so of course, when we escaped, we took it with us. As we looked at the burning house, we said to one another, Glory be to God, at least the Bible is saved, and we have it to comfort us in our sorrow. And so we lost all our belongings in the fire while my brother escaped without our knowledge that he was responsible for the fire. It was only later that we found this out, for while he was on a drinking binge, he bragged about stealing the money and setting the fire to the estate. Now we were poor indeed, for we were left naked and barefoot, but somehow on credit we built a small house and began to live as other peasants. My wife was a master of handcrafts. She took up weaving, spinning, and sewing, and she toiled day and night to support me. With my crippled hand I could not help her, so while she worked I read the Bible. Sometimes I would notice my wife crying while I read, and I would ask, Why the tears? Praise God that we are alive. Oh, it is not sorrow. I am touched by the wisdom of the word of God, she would say. We also remembered Grandfather's admonition, and we fasted often, recited the Aphicus to the Mother of God every morning, and in the evening made a thousand prostrations, so that we would not give in to temptation. In this manner we lived peacefully for two years. What is surprising is that, though we had no knowledge and understanding of interior activity and had never heard about the prayer of the heart, we had an attraction towards prayer. We prayed vocally and without inner awareness made bows like fools doing somersaults, and yet even long and seemingly incomprehensible prayer did not appear long or difficult but was recited with joy. Apparently what I had heard from one teacher is the truth. He said that secret prayer is found within the depth of each man, and that it is carried on in the soul of itself, and any man who knows how to listen hears the soul's call to outward prayer. After two years of such quiet life, my wife became seriously ill with a high fever, and after receiving the Holy Eucharist, she died on the ninth day. I was left completely alone, of course unable to work. Now my life was indeed difficult, and it was necessary for me to become a wanderer and beg for my food. I was overwhelmed with sorrow for my wife, and when I would come into the house and notice her scarf or some other piece of her clothing, I would weep until I fell unconscious. When I could no longer bear the grief of living at home, I sold the house for 20 rubles and gave whatever clothes there were, both my wife's and mine, to the poor. Then, because of my handicap, I was given a free passport. So I took my beloved Bible and set out where my eyes would lead. But as I left, I wondered, where will I go? First of all, I will go to Kiev to pay my respects to the saints of God buried there, and I will ask them to help me in my grief. 
and as soon as I made my decision, I felt better and by the time I reached Kiev, I was filled with joy. It has already been 13 years since that time that I have been wandering through various places. I have visited many churches and monasteries, but now I keep more to the plains and steppes. Now I wonder whether God will grant me the favor of reaching Jerusalem. God willing, it will be in time to bury my bones there. And how old are you? asked my spiritual father. I am 33 years old, the age of Christ. Chapter 4 As I came to see my spiritual father again, I said to him, The Russian proverb which says that man proposes and God disposes is indeed true. Today I was supposed to be on my way to the holy city Jerusalem, but as you can see I am still here. A totally unexpected incident compelled me to stay another three days in the city, and I could not leave without coming to see you once again, to share with you what had happened and to ask for advice. After I said goodbye to everyone with God's help, I set out on my journey, and just as I was leaving the town, in the yard of the last house, I passed and saw a man whom I recognized. He once was a wanderer also, and I had not seen him for three years. We greeted each other, and he asked me about my destination. I answered, God willing, I am on my way to Jerusalem. Praise be to God, he exclaimed. I know of a good companion for you. God be with him and you, I said, but don't you know that, according to my custom, I prefer to travel alone? Yes, I know, he replied, but you will like this fellow traveler, and it will be beneficial for both of you. You see, the father of the master of this house, where I work, has made a vow to go to Jerusalem, and he is now getting ready to go. I think that it will be pleasant for you to travel with him. He is a resident of this town, a nice old man, and completely deaf. You either have to shout at him or write a note before he will answer. Therefore, he will not get on your nerves on the trip. He is silent most of the time, even at home, and really, you could be of service to him on the trip. His son will give him a horse and a wagon to Odessa, and then these can be sold. The old man would like to go on foot, but he has luggage and some gifts for the tomb of our Lord, and so a horse is a must, and your bag can be conveniently carried also. Now think, how is it possible to send a deaf old man on such a long trip? 
His son looked and looked for a companion for him, but everyone asked for a lot of money, and it would not be safe to send him with a stranger because he will have money and other valuables with him. Brother, it would really be wonderful if you could agree to this. Do it for God's glory and out of love towards your neighbor. I will tell the master about you, and he will be exceedingly happy. They are good people and have been very good to me in the two years that I have worked for them. After our talk at the gate, he took me into the house of his master, and when I realized that I was dealing with a very respectable family, I agreed to their proposition. So now we've decided to start out on the third day of Christmas. God willing, we will leave immediately after we attend the Divine Liturgy. What unexpected happenings one encounters on the path of life. And always God in his divine providence is in charge of our destiny and our actions, as it is written. It is God, for his own loving purpose, who puts both the will and the action into you. Philippians 2.13 Dearly beloved brother, I am very happy that God so unexpectedly arranged for me to see you again for a little while, said my spiritual father. And as you are now free, I will lovingly keep you here longer, and you will tell me a bit more about the instructive encounters you have had on your long journey as a pilgrim. Your previous accounts were most interesting. I will gladly do this, Father, I said, and I began. A great deal of both good and bad happened to me. It is impossible to tell everything, and much of it I have already forgotten because I endeavor to remember only that which led and inspired my slothful soul to prayer. All other things I seldom thought of or rather tried to forget. Being mindful of the admonition of St. Paul, all I can say is that I forgot the past and I strain ahead for what is still to come. Philippians 3.13 My late elder used to say that obstacles to prayer come from two sides, the left and the right, that if the enemy does not succeed in turning us away from prayer by vain and sinful thoughts, then he brings to mind instructive and beautiful thoughts only to turn us away from prayer, which he cannot tolerate. And through this right-handed stealing, the soul abandons its communion with God, turns to its own thoughts, and talks to itself or to creatures. Therefore, he taught me that during prayer I should not succumb even to the most beautiful spiritual thought, and that if I discover at the end of the day that more time was spent in edifying thought and conversation than in real interior prayer of the heart, I should regard this as an intemperance or spiritual greediness. This is especially true for beginners, who should spend much more time in prayer than in other acts of piety. But of course, it is not good to forget everything, and some things are so deeply impressed on our mind that they are vivid even after a long period of time. Such is the memory of one devout family with which God made me worthy to spend several days. During the time of my wandering in the Tobolsk province, I was running out of bread as I passed through a city in that district. So I stopped at one house and asked for some bread for the road. The men of the house said to me, Praise be to God, you have come just in time. My wife has just removed the bread from the oven and you can have a warm loaf. And please pray for us. I thanked them. And as I was putting the bread in my knapsack, the lady of the house remarked, What a poor bag you have. I will replace it for you. And she gave me a good strong bag. 
I heartily thanked them again and went on. Then I stopped at the grocery store where I asked for and received some salt in a small bag. I was happy and thanked God for my benefactors. Now I would not have to worry about food for a whole week, and I could sleep in peace. Bless the Lord, O my soul, I exclaimed. Leaving that city behind and going about five verses from the road, I noticed a poor village as well as a poor wooden church, though from the outside the church was painted and seemed in good repair. Being so close to the church, I had a desire to visit the house of God and to say a prayer there. As I came close to the church, I noticed two small children playing in the meadow who were about five or six years of age. I thought that they were the priest's children, for they were well-dressed. I said my prayers, and as I was walking down the road, I heard someone calling, Dear beggar, dear beggar, please wait. I turned around, and there were the two children, a boy and a girl, who had been playing in the meadow. I stopped, and they came and took my hand and said, Let's go to see Mother. She loves the poor. I am not poor, I said. I'm just passing through the town. And how come you have a knapsack, they asked. That contains my valuable bread, I replied. We must certainly go to Mother, and she will give you some money for the road, they insisted. And where's your mother, I asked. There, behind the church, behind that grove, they answered. So they led me to a beautiful garden in the midst of which I saw a large country house. We went inside to an immaculately clean and well-furnished home. A lady came towards us. Welcome, welcome. God be praised for sending you to us, she said. Please sit down, brother. She took the knapsack from my back, placed it on the table, and motioned me to sit down in a soft, comfortable armchair. Would you like something to eat or would you like some tea? Is there anything I can do for you? She asked. I am deeply grateful, I said, but my bag is full of bread and I drink tea only occasionally. Your very warm welcome is more precious to me than any refreshments and I will ask God to reward you for your Christ-like love for strangers. As I said this, I felt a strong desire to turn within. Prayer was kindled in my heart and I needed peace and quiet in order to give full range to this self-activating flame. I needed solitude to conceal the external signs of prayer, the tears, sighs, and unusual movements of the face and lips. Therefore I got up and said, Please excuse me, madam, but it is time for me to go. May the Lord Jesus Christ be with you and with your beloved children. Oh no, God forbid that you should leave us, she said. I won't let you go. By evening my husband will come from the city, where he is a judge in the district court, and he will be delighted to see you. He regards every stranger as a messenger of God, and he would be disappointed indeed if he missed you. Besides, tomorrow is Sunday, so you can attend the liturgy with us, and then you can share in God's blessings to us and join us at table. On feast days, we usually have about 30 poor brothers of Christ for dinner. Would you care to tell me something about yourself and where you are going? Please do speak with me, for I enjoy listening to spiritual conversations of the servants of God. Children, children, take the bag of the pilgrim and put it in the guest room with the icons. He will sleep there. I was so touched by her words that I wondered whether I was speaking with a real person or whether this was some kind of vision. And so I stayed to await the man of the house. Briefly, I told the lady about my travels and that I was on my way to Irkutsk. How wonderful, she exclaimed. You will undoubtedly go through Tobolsk, and I have a mother there 
who is a nun in the convent who is a real ascetic. Many people go to her for spiritual direction. We will give you a letter to take to her as well as a book of St. John Climacus, which she had asked for me and which we ordered for her from Moscow. Everything will work out just fine. Then it was time for dinner, so we sat down to the table and were joined by four women. When we finished the first course of the meal, one of the ladies got up, bowed to the icon and then to us, and went to bring the second course. Then another lady went for the third course. I was curious when I saw this and I asked my hostess, May I be bold to ask whether these ladies are related to you? Yes, they are as sisters to me, she said. This one is the cook, that one the wife of the coachman, this one the housekeeper, and that one my housemaid. They are all married, there are no single girls in the house. I was edified to hear about such faithful servants of God, and again, I felt an intense desire to be alone so that I could pray. Therefore I got up from the table and said to the lady of the house, You no doubt need your rest after dinner, and I would like to take a walk in the garden. No, I do not rest after dinner, she said, and I will walk with you in the garden so that you can tell me something inspiring and instructive. Otherwise the children would go after you, and they would not leave you alone for a moment, for they really love the poor, the brothers of Christ, and pilgrims. There was nothing I could do, so we went for a walk. When we came into the garden, I decided to put a question to her, thinking this would give me a greater opportunity for silence. So I bowed to her and said, In the name of God, madam, will you tell me how long you have led a life of such devotion, and how did it all come about? I will gladly tell you, she replied. You see, my mother is the great-granddaughter of the Bishop Joseph, whose relics rest in Bielograd. My parents owned a large house in the city, and they rented one wing of it to a poor nobleman and his wife. This man became ill and died, leaving his wife pregnant. Shortly afterwards, the woman also died after giving birth to a baby boy. The newborn boy was a real orphan, so my mother took him in and lovingly took care of him. A year after this incident, I was born. So the boy and I grew up together, went to school together, and were as close as brother and sister. After some time, my father died also, and my mother left the city life behind, and we moved to this, her hometown. When my adopted brother and I grew up, mother gave us her blessing to marry and give us the estate, while she herself entered a monastery. With her parental blessings and the inheritance, she also gave us an admonition to live in a Christian manner, to pray fervently to God, and above all, to keep the great commandment of loving God and neighbor in all simplicity and humility, to feed and help the poor brothers of Christ, to raise our children in the fear of God, and treat the servants as our brothers. So this is how we have tried to live for the past ten years. We have a home for the poor and infirm, in which we now have more than ten sick and handicapped people. Tomorrow we will visit them. After this account, I asked her, Where is the book of John Climacus, which you wish to send to your mother? Let's go inside and I will find it for you, she said. Just as we sat down to read, her husband came home. When he saw me, he embraced me warmly, and as brothers we kissed each other. He then led me into his room as he said, Let us go, beloved brother, into my study, and you can bless my cell. I think that my wife must have gotten on your nerves. When she sees a pilgrim or a sick, sick person, then she cannot leave him alone for a moment. This is the custom of all the members of her family. 
We came into his study and I saw volumes and volumes of books, beautiful icons, and a life-size crucifix beneath which was the gospel. I said a prayer and said, Sir, this is indeed a heavenly place. You have here Christ Jesus, his Immaculate Mother and the Saints, together with their books which contain their inspired words and admonitions. I think that you must often avail yourself of this heavenly treasure. Yes, I admit that I love to read, he said. What kind of books do you have here, I asked. Many spiritual ones, he answered. A whole set of the works of John Chrysostom and Basil the Great, many theological and philosophical works, as well as many sermons of modern preachers. My library is worth 5,000 rubles. Do you have any books specifically on prayer, I asked. I love to read about prayer. Yes, I have the latest available book on prayer written by a priest from St. Petersburg, he said, and found the commentary on the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, and we eagerly began reading it. After some time, the lady joined us. She brought us some tea, and the children brought a golden basket full of delicious pastries, such as I had never tasted before. Then my host took the book from me and gave it to my wife, saying, We will have her read it while we refresh ourselves. So we listened as the lady read, and once again I experienced prayerful activity within my heart, and the more attentively I listened to the reading, the more intense the prayer became, and I experienced great consolation. Suddenly, in a flash, I saw the image of my late elder. I roused myself, and in order to conceal what had just happened, I excused myself saying that I dozed off. I felt that my spirit was in communion with the spirit of my late father, and I experienced an enlightened mind and had a great many thoughts about prayer. And just as I blessed myself to free myself from these thoughts, the lady finished reading, and her husband asked me how I liked this explanation of prayer. I liked it very much, I answered. The Lord's Prayer is the most valuable of all written prayers which the Christian knows, because the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught it. The material we had just listened to is very good, but for the most part it deals with the active life of the Christian, whereas I have read in the writings of the Holy Fathers about the interior and mystical explanation of this prayer. Which of the Fathers write about it? asked my host. Well, Maximus the Confessor and Peter Damascene in the Philokalia write about it, I answered. Will you please share with us whatever you remember? he asked. Oh yes, gladly. The explanation which we have just heard of the phrase, Our Father who art in heaven, reminds us of our duty to love our neighbor, because we are all children of the one Father. This is very true, but the Holy Fathers go a step further and say that these words invite us to raise our minds and hearts to our Heavenly Father, and remind us of our filial obligation to walk in God's presence from moment to moment. Again, according to your book, the explanation of the words, Hallowed be thy name is that the name of God should not be used irreverently or in, in unjust oaths. That the holy name of God is to be uttered reverently and never in vain. But the mystical writers see in this phrase a direct command for interior prayer of the heart. The holy name of God is to be impressed on the heart. By self-activating prayer is to make all the feelings and powers of the soul holy. In the words, Thy kingdom come, the mystical writers see a petition for inner peace, serenity, and spiritual joy in our hearts. According to your book, the words, Give us this day our daily bread, are a petition for whatever is necessary for our physical life, for ourselves and to help our neighbor. 
And Maximus the Confessor sees in these words a petition for the heavenly bread of the soul, that is the word of God, and union with him, communion with God, and ceaseless prayer of the heart. Ah, such achievement is beyond mortal man's reach, exclaimed my host. The most a man can do with the help of God is to overcome slothfulness and recite the prayer vocally. Do not think that, sir, I replied, for if this were beyond man's reach, then God would not command all men to do it. His strength is accomplished in weakness, and the Holy Fathers, out of the abundance of their experience, suggest methods which can make this achievement easier. Of course, they recommend special means for the dedicated, religious like the hermits, but for lay people also, they suggest practical and realistic methods of achieving interior prayer. I never read anything comprehensive about this form of prayer, said my host. If I may, I would like to read something for you from the Philokalia. I said, and I opened the book to the section of Peter Damascene, and began reading the following. It is more necessary to learn to call in the name of God than it is to breathe. The Apostle Paul says that we are to pray without ceasing, and by this he means that man is to remember God at all times, in all places, and under all circumstances. If you are making something, you should remember the Creator of all things. If you see light, you should remember Him who gave it to you. If you see the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, you should marvel and praise God who called them all into being. If you are clothing yourself, remember the blessing of your Creator. Praise Him for being concerned about your well-being. In short, every action of every day should cause you to remember and praise God. And if you do this, then you will be praying ceaselessly and your soul will always be joyful. Then I said, Do you see how convenient and simple this method of ceaseless prayer is? And that it can be attained by anyone who has some human feelings? Both of my friends were impressed by this. The judge embraced me warmly thanked me, looked at my philokalia and said, Without fail, I will get a copy of that book. I will order it immediately from St. Petersburg, but for now, I would like to have a copy of the article you have just read for me, so please dictate it to me. He then wrote it down quickly and beautifully, and as he did so, he exclaimed, My God, I have an icon of St. Damascene. He placed the writing beneath the glass of the icon and said, here is the living word of the servant of God together with this picture, and it will serve as a reminder for me to put into practice his sound advice. We then went to supper and were joined as before by all the people living there. There was blessed silence at table, and after supper we all prayed for a long time, both the adults and the children. I was asked to read the Akathist in honor of Christ Jesus. When the meal was over, the servants went to rest, and the three of us stayed in the room. The lady brought me a white shirt and socks. I graciously thanked her and said, I will not take the socks, madam, as I never wear them. I am accustomed to wearing leggings. She quickly ran upstairs and brought her old caftan, a fine yellow cloth, and cut out two leggings. The judge looked at my feet and said, Look at that poor man, his ragged footwear is falling apart. He brought me his new overshoes. Then he said, Come into this room. There is no one here, and you can change your underwear. So I changed my clothes and returned to them. They asked me to be seated, and they began to cover my feet. I was reluctant to have them do this, but they insisted and said, Sit down and be quiet. Christ washed the feet of his disciples. 
The judge wrapped the new pieces of cloth around my feet and his wife put the overshoes on. Overcome with emotion, I cried and they cried with me. Then the lady and the children went to sleep in the house and the judge and I went into the summer cottage. For a long time, we did not sleep. We just lay there and talked. My host said these forceful words to me, For God's sake and the good of your conscience, will you tell me the whole truth about yourself? You may be from a noble class and are only pretending to be a simple peasant. You read, write, speak, and reason well, and this cannot be the result of peasants' upbringing. I was astonished to hear this and said, I told the whole and simple truth of my background, both to you and to your wife. It never occurred to me to lie or deceive you. And for what? Much of what I say I heard from my beloved and wise elder, or I read in the writings of the Holy Fathers. But for the most part, my ignorance has been enlightened by interior prayer, which is the result of God's grace and the teaching of my late elder. What I have, every man can have. All that is necessary is to descend in silence into the depths of one's own heart and call on the name of Jesus Christ frequently. In this way, one can experience interior light and many things will become clear to him, even the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And what depth of mystery and what light there is when man realizes his ability to descend into himself, to see his inner self, to take pleasure in self-knowledge, to be touched and even to shed tears over his fallen and weakened will. It is not difficult to be reasonable and to speak sensible with men. For the mind and the heart of man proceed knowledge and wisdom. When one has a mind, it is possible to cultivate it with learning and experience. But when there is no brain, no upbringing will help. The fact is that we are alienated from ourselves and have little desire really to know ourselves. We run in order to avoid meeting ourselves, and we exchange truth for trinkets, while we say, I would like to have time for prayer and the spiritual life, but the cares and difficulties of this life demand all my time and energies. And what is more important and necessary, the eternal life of the soul or the temporary life of the body, about which man worries so much. It is this choice which man makes that either leads him to wisdom or keeps him in ignorance. Excuse my question, beloved brother, but I wasn't being just curious. Rather, feelings of respect for you and Christian understanding between us as well, as an incident which occurred here two years ago, prompted my question. You see, a poor old and senile man came to us with the passport of a retired soldier. He was barefooted and practically naked and spoke a little and as simply as would a peasant from the steppes. We took him into our home for the sick and poor, and after being with us for five days, he became seriously ill. We brought him to this summer cottage and calmed him, and my wife and I tried to nurse him back to health. But his condition became worse, and it was necessary to prepare him for death. So we called our parish priest to hear his confession, give him the Holy Eucharist, and anoint him. The day before he died, he got up and asked me for a paper and pen and explained that he wanted to be left alone to write his last will for his son. After his death, I was to mail the will to his son at a given address in St. Petersburg. I was thoroughly amazed when I saw not only his beautiful handwriting, but the style of his composition, precise in every respect and most refined. 
I have a copy of that will, and tomorrow I will read it for you. My surprise and curiosity prompted me to ask the old man about his background and his life. He made me take an oath to say nothing about this before his death, and then, for the glory of God, he told me about his past life, and here is what he said. I was a rich prince who led a very proud, luxurious, and dissipated life. My wife died and I lived with my son, who served as captain in the guards. Once, when I was getting ready to go to a ball, which was being given by a very important person, I became very angry with my valet, and unable to control my rage, I cruelly hit him in the head, and then gave orders to have him sent to the village. This took place in the evening, and on the following day the valet died from inflammation of the head. The incident passed, and though I regretted my carelessness, I soon forgot about it. But after six weeks, the deceased valet began to appear to me during my sleep. Every night, he disturbed and reproached me with these words, You have no conscience. You are my murderer. Then I began to see him clearly even when I was awake. As time passed, he appeared more and more frequently until I saw him almost continuously. Then with him I began to see other spirits of the dead, peasants whom I had cruelly abused and women whom I had seduced. All of them now disturbed me to such a degree that I could neither eat nor sleep nor do anything. I lost all my strength and became so emaciated that only skin hung on my bones. All the solicitude of knowledgeable doctors brought no relief. I went abroad in search of a healing but returned after six months with no help. On the contrary, the torturing visions were now even worse. I was brought back home barely alive and continued to experience in full measure the tortures of the suffering souls in hell even while I was still in my body. I had no doubt now about the existence of hell or its meaning. While in this suffering condition, I realized my sins. I repented, confessed, freed all my servants, and made a vow to spend my entire life in the spirit of repentance as the lowest of the low in order to atone for my sins. When I firmly resolved to do this, my disturbing visions vanished. I experienced such great peace and joy at being reconciled with God that, that I cannot even begin to describe it. Now I realize what heaven is all about and how the kingdom of God is revealed in the depths of our hearts. Soon I was completely well, and so I kept my promise and left my family carrying the passport of a retired soldier. It is now 15 years that I have been wandering over Siberia. Sometimes I worked as a hired hand for the peasants, but regardless of what I was doing, I found my comfort in calling on the name of Jesus Christ. What bliss I tasted! What joy and peace of conscience I experienced in my renunciation! But this can be appreciated fully only by Him who has suffered the tortures of hell and then has been brought to heaven by Christ, the intercessor of man. After he told me all this, he gave me the will to be sent to his son, and on the following day he died. I have a copy of his will in my Bible, and if you'd like to read it, I will get it for you. Please do, I said. I opened it and read. In the name of the triune and glorious God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
my beloved son. It is already 15 years since you have seen your father, but I have nourished a paternal love for you and have inquired about your welfare from time to time. Now, before my death, my love for you prompts me to send you these few lines with the hope that they will be for you a lesson in life. You know how I suffered because of my undisciplined and dissipated life, but you do not know how blessed I have been in experiencing the fruits of repentance. I am dying peacefully in the house of my and your benefactor. I say your benefactor also because blessings poured on the Father will touch a sensitive son, so give him some token of our gratitude. I give you my parental blessing and I urge you to remember God and to guard your conscience. Be careful and sensible in dealing with your subordinates. Be as gentle and loving as possible with them. Do not scorn the poor or strangers. Remember that it was only in poverty and wandering that your dying father found peace and solace for his suffering soul. Calling the blessings of God upon you, I peacefully close my eyes and I hope for eternal life through the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, your Father. The good judge and I continued our conversation and I asked him, Don't you have quite a bit of trouble with your home for the sick and poor? Many of our brothers are wanderers because they have nothing to do or because they are lazy and they are thieves on the road as I have had occasion to see. There are not many cases of that sort. Almost all are real pilgrims, answered my host. But when such troublemakers do come to us, we take special care of them. After living with the poor and humble brothers of Christ, they are converted and leave our home gentle and humble people. Not long ago we had such a case. One man from this area led such a corrupt life that people refused to take him in and would chase him from their gates with a stick. No one would give him even a piece of bread. He was a violent, quarrelsome drunkard and a thief. One day when he was very hungry he came to us asking for bread and also for wine to which he was quite addicted. We received him warmly and said, You may live with us, and we will give you all the wine you want on condition that after you have had some, you will immediately go to sleep. But if you rebel even to a small degree and wander on the streets, then we will not only throw you out and never again take you in, but we will ask the police officer or the governor to have you deported as a suspicious vagrant. He agreed to this and stayed with us. For about a week or more, he really drank a lot, as much as he wished. But because of his addiction to the wine, he kept his promise and went to sleep or went into the garden and lay there quietly. When he sobered up, the other brothers spoke to him kindly and encouraged him to give up drinking a little bit at a time. So he gradually began drinking less. And finally, after three months, he became an abstinent man. He has found himself a job and no longer eats his bread in idleness. In fact, he was here recently to thank me for my help. What wisdom and guidance, I thought, and exclaimed. Blessed be God who has revealed his mercy in a home which is under your protection. After this talk, the judge and I fell asleep for about an hour and a half, and when we heard the church bells ringing for matins, we got up. When we got to church, the lady of the house was already there with the children. 
After Matins, we took part in the Divine Liturgy. The judge, his son, and I stood close to the altar, and the lady with her daughters stood by the royal door so that they could see the elevation of the holy gifts. My Lord, how fervently they prayed. They were on their knees shedding tears of joy. Their faces became so radiant that looking at them, I also was moved to tears. After the liturgy, the priests, the servants, and all the poor, about 40 people altogether, went to the dining room. There were handicapped people, sick people, and children. They all sat around one table in silence. I was bold enough to say gently to the judge, In the monasteries, they read the lives of the saints during the meals. It would be good for you to do this here, since you have many spiritual books. The judge turned to his wife and said, I think that is an excellent idea, Mary. Let us set up a plan, and it will be most edifying. I will read first, and then you, and then Father, and then all those brothers who can read can take a turn. The priest who sat there eating said, I would like to listen, but not to read, thank you, as I do not have free time to prepare. I come home and don't know where to turn, nothing but troubles and cares, needs of all kinds, both for the children and the animals. I spend the whole day in worldly concerns and have no time to read or study. Even what I learned in the seminary, I have already forgotten. I shuddered when I heard this, but the hostess who was sitting next to me took my hand and said, Father says this in all humility. He always puts himself down, but in reality he's a very devout priest, and his life is one of dedicated service. He has been a widower for now twenty years and is raising a whole family of grandchildren by himself. Hearing this, I was reminded of the saying of Nisitas Tethetos in the Philokalia. The nature of things is judged by the inner attitude of the soul. That is, one infers and makes judgment from where he is. He in whom prayer and love are real does not see dichotomy in things. He does not separate the saint from the sinner, does not judge but loves all equally, as God does, who makes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. Again, silence prevailed. Across from me sat a blind man from the home. The judge fed him. He cut his fish, gave him a spoonful at a time, and poured his soup. I found myself staring at the poor man and noticed that his mouth was continually open and his tongue was moving and quivering. I thought that he must be praying, and I watched him even more intently. Toward the end of the meal, one old lady became ill and began to groan. The judge and his wife took the woman to their bedroom and put her to bed. And while the wife stayed with the sick woman, the judge gave orders to have the coach readied and went for the doctor. The priest went for the Holy Eucharist, and all the people went to their places. I felt a hunger for prayer, an intense desire for an interior outpouring, because I had had no silence in 48 hours. My heart seemed inundated and tried to break forth its sweetness throughout my whole being. The effort of holding it in produced a great pain, which though delightful was demanding silence and prayer. Now I realized why those in whom the self-activating prayer was real ran away from people and sought solitude. 
I also understood why the Venerable Isaac calls even the most spiritual and beneficial but moderate speech empty talk, and why St. Ephraim of Syria says, Good speech is silver, but silence is pure gold. Thinking in this vein, I went to the home and found that all were resting after dinner. I went to the garret, regained my peace, then rested and prayed. When the people of the house got up, I found the blind man and led him to the garden where we sat alone and talked. For God's sake and the benefit of my soul, please tell me whether you are reciting the Jesus prayer, I asked. Yes, I have been doing it for quite some time, he answered. And what do you get out of it, I asked. I simply cannot be without it, both day and night, he answered. Beloved brother, Please tell me in detail how you happened to begin this holy practice, I continued. You see, I am from this area, but I used to earn my living as a tailor, and I traveled to the villages in various districts to make clothes for the peasants. It so happened that I stayed with a family in one village for quite a while, sewing their clothes. And one feast day, when I was not working, I noticed three books on the shelf in the icon corner and asked, Who reads in your family? No one, they replied. These books used to belong to our uncle, who was a literate man. I took one of the books, opened it at random, and as far as I can remember, I read something like this. Ceaseless prayer consists in constantly calling on the name of God, whether one is talking, walking, working, eating, or doing anything else, in all places and at all times, it behooves us to call on the name of God. After reading this passage, I began to think that this would be very convenient for me to do, and so I began whispering the prayer while I was sewing, and I liked it. However, those with whom I lived in the house noticed this and made fun of me and asked, Are you a sorcerer or something? Why are you constantly whispering? What are you saying? So in order not to get any notice, I stopped moving my lips and said the prayer only with my tongue. After some time, I became so accustomed to it that my tongue says it of itself, both day and night, and I find it most comforting. For a long time, I went about with my work like this, and then I completely lost my sight. Almost everyone in my family has suffered from glaucoma. Because of my inability to take care of myself, my community has assigned me to an almshouse in the city of Tobolsk, and I will be going there shortly. These nice people want to give me a cart ride to Tobolsk. What was the name of the book which you were reading? Was it perhaps the Philokalia, I asked? I really don't know. I didn't even look at the front page, he answered. I brought out my Philokalia, opened it to the writings of Patriarch Callistus, and read to him the same words which he had recited from memory. That's it! That's it exactly, said the blind man. Please continue reading, brother, how comforting those words are. And when he heard the phrase, it behooves us to pray with our heart, he was eager for me to explain these words to him and asked me, what does this mean and how is it done? I proceeded to tell him that the Philokalia was a detailed explanation about this prayer, and he eagerly asked me to read everything to him. This is what we will do, I said. When are you planning to go to Tobolsk? Immediately he answered, Well, tomorrow I also plan to go, and we can go together, and then I can read to you all that pertains to the prayer, and I will point out to you the method of locating the place of the heart and descending into it. 
How about the cart? he asked. Ah, you don't need it. It is not that far to Tobolsk, only about 150 versts. Two of us can go slowly, and it will be pleasant to walk and talk about the prayer. And thus we agreed. In the evening the judge himself came to call us to supper, and after supper we told him that the blind man and I would be leaving together on the following day, and that there would be no need of the cart, that while walking we could more readily read the Philokalia. The judge eagerly responded, I also like the Philokalia very much, and I have written a letter and have the money ready so that tomorrow, when I go to work, I can send the order to St. Petersburg and have it by return mail. So on the following morning, the two of us started out after expressing heartfelt thanks to our benefactors for their extraordinary love and kindness. The judge and his wife walked with us a verse from their home, and then we parted. So my blind friend and I walked slowly, and only a little bit at a time, covering 10 to 15 verses a day. And all the remaining time we sat in quiet places and read the Philokalia. I read to him about the prayer of the heart in the same order which my late elder had shown to me, that is, beginning with the writing of Nisiphorus the Solitary, Gregory of Sinai, etc. How avidly and attentively he listened what great joy and comfort he found in it. But then he began to ask me questions about prayer which were beyond my ability to answer. After I had read the appropriate section from the Philokalia to him, he earnestly asked me to show him a practical method of locating the heart with the mind, introducing the name of Jesus Christ to it, and thus experiencing the joy of praying with the heart. So I began to explain it to him. Well, Even though you are blind and cannot see anything with your eyes, with your mind you can imagine and represent to yourself that which you saw before, a man, some object, or a part of your body like a hand or a foot. You can imagine any objects as vividly as though you were looking at it, can't you? Yes, I can, he responded. So I continued, then in exactly the same way, imagine your heart. Direct your eyes as though you were looking at it through your heart, through your breast. See the heart as vividly as you can, and listen attentively to its rhythmic beat. And when you have become accustomed to this, then begin to say the words of the prayer while looking into your heart, to the rhythm of your heartbeat. With the first beat, say, Lord. With the second, Jesus. With the third, Christ. With the fourth, have mercy, and with the fifth, on me. And repeat this very frequently. This should be fairly easy for you because you have practiced the preliminary part of the prayer of the heart. The next step, according to the writings of the fathers, is to direct the flow of the Jesus prayer in the heart in harmony with your breathing. That is, while inhaling, say, Lord Jesus Christ. And while exhaling, say, have mercy on me. Practice this as often as possible, gradually increasing the time. And before too long, you will experience a kind of pleasant pain in the heart, a warmth and a sense of burning. Thus, with the help of God, you will attain self-activating prayer of the heart. However, you must be extremely careful in all this to guard your imagination against any kind of visions The Holy Father strictly warned against this so as not to fall into deception. 
My blind friend listened to all this with great attention and began fervently to do what I had suggested, especially when we stopped for the night. After five days, he experienced great warmth and unspeakable joy in the heart, as well as great desire ceaselessly to say the prayer, which led him to greater love for Jesus Christ. Sometimes he would see a light without any objects, and at other times it seemed to him that when he entered his heart a bright flame, as from a lighted candle illuminated his heart and his whole being, and by this light he could see faraway objects, as the following incidents illustrates. We were going through the woods, and he was silent and absorbed in prayer. Then all of a sudden he said to me, How unfortunate! The church is burning and the tower has fallen down. I said to him, Stop imagining vain things. That is a temptation, and you should renounce it immediately. How could you possibly see what is in the city? We are twelve versts away from it. He listened to me and continued his prayer in silence. By evening we reached the city, and I really saw some burned houses and the fallen tower which had been built on wooden poles. A throng of spectators were around marveling that the tower did not crush anyone. After inquiring about the misfortune, I realized that it took place at the same time as my blind friend was telling me about it. He then said to me, See, you thought that it was all my imagination, and it was real. How can I not love and praise Jesus Christ, who reveals his blessings to sinners, to the blind and ignorant, and I am grateful to you for also teaching me the prayer of the heart. Love Jesus Christ and praise him, I said, but beware of regarding all visions as direct revelations from heaven, because they can often be the result of a natural order of things. The soul of man is not confined by matter and space, It can see both near and far and also in the dark. But we do not give this ability of the soul full scope for its activity. We suppress it either by the density of our bodies or the confusion of our thoughts. When we clarify our thinking, when we learn how to concentrate and renounce everything in our environment which is detrimental to our spiritual life, then our soul comes to its own and begins to function on a higher, though natural level. I heard from my late elder that even people who do not pray can have this ability and that some people gain it through sickness. Then in a dark room they can see a light as it emanates from different objects. They can see their own image and they can penetrate the thoughts of another. But what comes from the prayer of the heart is directly from God's grace and it is so wonderful that it is beyond all description and cannot be compared to anything material. Nothing sensual can be compared to the heavenly sweetness in the heart which comes from God's grace. My blind friend took this to heart and became even more humble. The intensity of the prayer in his heart increased and he experienced unspeakable consolation. I was very happy about this and with my whole heart I prayed God for making me worthy of knowing such a devout servant of his. Finally, we reached Tobolsk and I brought my blind friend to the almshouse, and after we parted lovingly, I continued with my journey. For a month I walked quietly and became deeply aware of how edifying and encouraging good examples are. I read from the Philokalia and checked everything which I had told my blind friend about the prayer. His inspiring example enkindled in me fervor. 
gratitude, and love towards the Lord. The prayer of the heart consoled me to such a degree that I considered myself the happiest man on earth, and I wondered if the blessed vision could bring any greater consolation. Not only was I experiencing deep interior joy, but I sensed a oneness with all of God's creation. People, animals, trees, and plants all seemed to have the name of Jesus Christ imprinted upon them. At times I felt such freedom of movement that it seemed I had no body which walked, but I was delightfully carried through the air. At other times I descended within myself. I clearly saw all my organs and was astonished at the wisdom of the composition of the human body. At still other times I felt as happy as a king, and with all these consolations I had a great desire to die and be poured out in praise and thanksgiving at the feet of Christ in the world of the Spirit. But either I took too great a delight in these consolations, or perhaps God permitted me to be tried, because for some time I experienced fear and trembling in my heart. I wondered whether another misfortune was in store for me, similar to the one I had with the girl to whom I taught the Jesus prayer. Clouds of thoughts overwhelmed me, and I remembered the words of John Carpathus, that to help another spiritually, one must submit to disgrace, misfortune, and temptations. So struggling with these thoughts, I redoubled my prayer and succeeded in dispelling them as I prayed. May God's will be done. I am ready to suffer all that Christ Jesus permits to come to me for my sinful and proud disposition. I realized that those to whom I had recently revealed the mystery of interior prayer of the heart were prepared for it by God's secret teaching, even before my encounter with them. I regained my peace and continued on my way happier than before. For two days it rained and the road was so muddy that I could hardly pull my feet out of the mud, and I walked through the steps for fifteen versts without seeing any settlements. And then at last by evening I saw a courtyard close to the road, and I thought happily, I will ask for lodging here, and tomorrow, God willing, the weather will be better. I came into the court and saw a drunken old man in a soldier's overcoat sitting on a mound. I greeted him and asked, Is there someone here I can ask for lodging? No one but I can give you permission, shouted the man. I'm in charge here. This is a post office station, and I'm the postmaster. Then may I please spend the night here, sir, I asked. And do you have a passport? Give some legal proof of your identity. I gave him the passport, and while holding it in his hands, he said again, Where is your passport? In your hands, I replied. Well, then, let's go inside. The postmaster put on his eyeglasses, looked at the passport, and said, The passport is legal, and you can sleep here. I am a good man and will even give you a glass of vodka. I do not drink, I said. Well, then at least have supper with us. So we sat down to table, the postmaster, a young cook, who also had had enough to drink, and I. During the course of the meal, they abused and reproached one another and even hit one another. But finally the postmaster went to sleep in the storage room, and the cook began to wash the dishes and to clean up the kitchen. But as she worked, she continued to abuse the old man. I sat there for a while, and then I thought that it might take some time before she finished, so I said to her, Where can I sleep, madam? 
I'm very tired from the road. I will prepare your bed, she said, and she placed two benches together by the front window, covered them with a piece of felt, and gave me a pillow. I lie down, closed my eyes, and rested in silence. For a long time the cook bustled about, but finally she finished, shut off the light, and came towards me. Suddenly the whole front window, the frame, glass, and splinters of woods flew and came crashing down so that the whole house shook, and outside the window was heard painful moaning and screaming. The woman jumped to the center of the room in fright and then fell down on the floor, unconscious. Utterly shocked, I jumped up, thinking that the earth had opened up under me, and then I saw two coachmen bringing in a man who was covered with blood beyond recognition, and my horror increased. The man they brought in was a courier who was coming to the station for a change of horses. His coachman missed the gate and the path leading to the house, and with a drawbar knocked out the window and overturned the carriage into the ditch by the house. The courier fell and cut his head on a sharp stake, which supported the mound. When they brought him in, he asked for water and wine to clean his wound. Then he drank a glass of wine and shouted an order for the horses. I was standing by him and said to him, Sir, how can you possibly travel with such a wound? The courier may never be sick, he answered and ran out. The coachman pulled the cook, who was unconscious, close to the stove, covered her with a blanket and said, She is in a state of shock, but she will come to. And the postmaster took another drink and went back to sleep. I was left alone. Soon the woman got up, all distraught. She walked back and forth in the house, and then she went out. I said a prayer, and as I was completely exhausted, just before dawn, I fell asleep. In the morning I parted with the postmaster and went on my way. As I walked, I prayed with faith hope and thanksgiving to the Father of all blessings, who had protected me from danger, which was so close. Six years after this incident took place, I was passing by a convent and stopped to pray in the church. After the liturgy, the Mother Superior invited me for some tea, but when some unexpected guest came, she went with them and left me with the sisters. The humble nun who poured my tea aroused my curiosity and I asked her, "'Have you been in this monastery very long, sister?' Five years,' she answered. "'I was mentally disturbed when I was brought here, "'but God had mercy on me and healed me, "'and then Mother Superior received me into the community "'and gave me the veil. "'What caused your mental disturbance?' I asked. "'Fear. "'I worked at a station, and one night there was a terrible accident. "'A horse ran into the house and knocked out a window.' The shock which I experienced that night caused me to lose my senses, and then for a whole year my parents took me from one holy shrine to another, but it was here, in this convent, that I obtained a healing. When I heard all this, I was filled with joy, and I praised God, who ordains all things in wisdom. There were so many unusual happenings which I encountered that even three days would not suffice to tell you all. I said to my spiritual father, but I would like to tell you just one more. One bright summer, I was passing by a church in a cemetery which were close to the road. The church bells were ringing for the liturgy and I decided to go. Many people from the surrounding area were also going to church and some were sitting on the grass outside the church and 
When they saw me walk briskly, they said to me, Don't be in such a hurry, for you will get tired standing in the church. The services here are very long, as our priest is sick and celebrates very slowly. And in reality, the liturgy was very long. The priest was a young man, but he looked pale and worn out. He prayed very slowly and very fervently, and at the end of the liturgy, he gave a simple and beautiful sermon on how to grow in the love of God. After the liturgy, the priest invited me to his house for dinner, and as we talked, I said to him, How slowly and devoutly you say the liturgy, Father. Yes, but my parishioners don't like it and grumble about it. Yet nothing can be done, because I choose to think about every word of a prayer before I vocalize it. Prayer without interior feeling is not very effective, either for the one who recites it or for the one who listens to it. Everything depends on interior life and on attentive prayer. But how few people are occupied with interior activity? The reason for this is that they don't really want it. They have no yearning for spiritual life and interior enlightenment, said the priest. But how does one attain such depth? It seems most difficult, I said. It is not in the least difficult, he replied. To be spiritually enlightened and to be an interior man, one needs only to take a passage from scripture and meditate on it. As much as possible, one should hold one's attention on it, and in this way one's mind will become illumined. And this is also how one should proceed in prayer. For a pure and satisfying prayer, one should choose simple but powerful words and then repeat them frequently. In this way, it is possible to get an appetite for prayer. I was very pleased to hear this simple and practical but also profound explanation of prayer. Interiorly, I thanked God for this devout shepherd of the church. After the meal, the priest said to me, You can rest a while and I will read the word of God and prepare for tomorrow's sermon. So, looking for a quiet place, I came into the kitchen and saw there a very old lady sitting in the corner, bent over and coughing. I sat close to the window, took the philokalia from my bag, and began to read. Soon after I sat down, I realized that the woman in the corner was reciting the Jesus prayer without ceasing. I was very happy to hear the name of Jesus so frequently. I turned to her and said, How wonderful it is, dear mother, to hear you pray so constantly. This is a very Christian and meritorious act. Yes, may God be praised. It is such a joy in my old age, she said. Have you been praying like this for a long time, I asked. Yes, since I was very young, and now I cannot do without it. The Jesus prayer saved me from destruction and death. How did that happen, I asked. Please tell me about it for the glory of God and greater appreciation of the power of the Jesus prayer. I put the philokalia in my bag, sat closer to her, and began to listen. When I was young and beautiful, my parents arranged a marriage for me, but a misfortune intervened and changed the course of my life. The day before the wedding was to take place, the groom was on his way to our house, and before he got very far, he suddenly fell down and died. This affected and frightened me so deeply that I renounced marriage altogether and decided to live as a virgin and spend my days in prayers and in visiting the holy places. However, I could not travel alone for fear that someone would take advantage of my youth. Well, an old lady that I knew taught me the Jesus prayer and suggested that I recite it ceaselessly on the road 
and in that way obtain God's protection. I took this to heart and then traveled everywhere securely, even to faraway places. My parents took care of my financial needs. Now that I am old and sick, the priest of this parish takes care of my needs. I was filled with joy to hear this, and I did not know how to thank God for this day, on which I met such devout people. Then I asked for a blessing of the good and holy priest and joyfully went on my way. Recently, when I was passing through the Kazansky province on my way here, I heard of yet another example of the power of the Jesus prayer and how clearly and effectively it bears fruit even in one who seems to say it mechanically and without devotion. Once I had to spend the night in Tartar settlement. However, when I came into the village, I saw a carriage by a window of one of the houses and a Russian coachman feeding the horses. I was glad to see this and decided to ask for lodging right there, with the hope of at least sleeping with Christians. I went up to the coachman and asked, Where are you going? I'm going with my master from Kazan to Crimea, he answered. While the coachman and I were speaking, his master opened the curtains of the carriage, looked at me and said, The Tartars' houses are rather uncomfortable, so I'm spending the night here in the carriage. It was a pleasant evening, and later the gentleman came out for a walk, and we started talking. He asked me many questions, but also told me about himself, and this is what he said. Up to the age of 65, I was a captain in the Navy, and then with old age I became ill with an incurable disease, the gout. When I retired from the service, I lived on my wife's farm in Crimea, and was almost continuously sick. My wife was full of life and a great card player, so she found it confining and boring to live with a sick man and she left me. She went to live in Kazan with our daughter who is married to a city official there. My wife took everything with her, even the servants. She left me with my godson an eight-year-old boy. I lived in this way for three years. The boy took good care of me. He was quick and capable of doing everything around the house. He cleaned the house, made fire in the stove, cooked cereal and got the samovar ready. But with all this, he was mischievous and full of tricks. He ran around, screamed, knocked things over, and in general got on my nerves. I needed peace and quiet, for in my weariness and illness, I enjoyed reading spiritual books. I had a beautiful book by Gregory Palamas on the Jesus Prayer, which I read practically all the time, and I also prayed a little. The boy's conduct really disturbed me, and no threats were effective to keep him from his pranks. So this is what I decided to do with him. I made him sit down on a bench next to me, and I ordered him to say the Jesus prayer without stopping. At first he did this reluctantly and often lapsed into silence. So to have him do exactly as I said, I had birch on hand. When he said the prayer, I peacefully read the books or listened to how he pronounced the words. But the moment he would become silent, I would show him the whip and so scared him into praying again. At last, I had peace and quiet in my house. After some time, I noticed that the whip was no longer necessary, for the boy recited the prayer willingly and diligently, and I noticed a change in his behavior. He became quiet and restrained, and did the domestic duties with greater care. I was happy to see this and gave him more freedom. In the end, he got so accustomed to the prayer that he was saying it no matter what he was doing and without any coercion on my part. 
When I asked him what he thought of the prayer, he answered that he felt irresistibly drawn to say it constantly. What do you feel when you say it? I asked. Nothing. I only feel good when I say it. How good? I asked. I don't really know how to describe it, he said. Do you feel happy? I asked again. Yes, happy, he said. The boy was 12 years old when the Crimean War broke out, and I took him with me to Kazan to visit my daughter. While there, he was placed in the kitchen with other people, and he complained to me that the people were joking and playing among themselves, and that they laughed at him and disturbed his prayer. Finally, after three months after he came, he said to me, I can't take it any longer. I'm going back home. It is unbearably noisy and distracting here. How can you go alone and so far in this cold weather, I asked. Wait until I return and then we will go together. On the following day, my boy disappeared. We sent people to look for him everywhere, but no one could find him. At last, I received a letter from Crimea, from the people that were left there on the farm, to the effect that the boy was found dead in my house on April 4th, the second day of Easter. They found him lying on the floor in my room with his hands devoutly crossed over his breast, his cap under his head, and wearing the same light frock coat which he had on when I last saw him. They buried him in my garden. I was astonished to get this news, for I could not imagine how he got to the farm that fast. He left on the 26th of February, and on the 4th of April he was found dead. At least a month is needed, and God's help to cover the distance for 3,000 versts on horses, about a 100 versts a day. In addition to this, the boy had no warm clothes, no passport, not even a kopeck. And if he did get a ride, then without a doubt, this was an act of divine providence and God's special care for him. This boy, said the man, tasted the fruit of prayer to a greater degree than I in my old age. After this account, I said to the gentleman, Sir, I am familiar with that book, that beautiful book of Gregory Palamas, which you enjoyed reading, but it discusses mostly the vocal prayer of Jesus. I would suggest that you read the Philokalia, for in it you will find a complete explanation of how to achieve the interior prayer of the heart and mind and taste its sweet fruit. And with this I showed him my copy of the Philokalia. He examined the book and then promised to get himself a copy. My God, I thought to myself, what unusual revelations of the power of God come through this prayer, and how extraordinary and instructive is this incident. The boy was taught to pray by means of a whip, and even this method resulted in great joy. Are not our cares and misfortunes the whips which God permits us to experience on our path in prayer? Why then are we confused and afraid when the hand of our Heavenly Father, full of infinite love, shows them to us and by means of them wishes to teach us to pray fervently and thus lead us to unspeakable joy? When I finished these accounts, I said to my spiritual father, Please excuse me, Father, for talking so much. The Holy Fathers consider even spiritual but immoderate speech as empty talk. It is time for me to go and find my fellow traveler to Jerusalem. Please say a prayer for me, a great sinner, that the Lord in his infinite mercy would bless my journey and bring good out of it. 
With my whole heart I wish you this, beloved brother, he replied. May the abundant blessing of God overshadow your path and be your companion, as was the angel Raphael to Tobias.